0: All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this
1: very soon. Always make the audience suffer as much as possible. The master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock, created a filmography that exemplifies the art form of filmmaking while still making it accessible to everyone. The sinister nature in most of his films taps into the audience's fears to shock them in a cinematic experience that is unique to itself. You know a Hitchcock film when you see it, and you feel the creeping, icy sensation of suspense of each passing minute. So, John, should the audience always suffer as much as possible, according to one Alfred Hitchcock, when watching his films or really any films? I mean, what does that quote say to you? Well,
0: he's definitely a master of suspense, as you just read. And
1: I think he really focuses
0: that and narrows that down throughout his films. And you'll see that kind of evolution going throughout his career. Now, I think with his films, it's it's definitely like a suffered throughout uh, kind of like slowly unraveling, digging up more and more details as you're kind of like investigating these psychological thrillers or these kind of like spy thrillers, depending on which kind of film or genre he's working in. I think for him, that's like exactly his bread and butter, right? Like causing so much tension. And I think it was pretty new for the time to really like have people on edge that much and, and kind of distincting and uh, separating suspense from surprise, just like a kind of like a pop out moment or a kind of a a loud jump scare, as we would call them now in like the horror genre. I think he really narrowed down and, and figured out a formula on how to like manipulate an audience. And usually when you say like manipulate, it's kind of, a bad thing right but the way he's done it and film is like a visual language that you kind of have to understand to, to kind of see how an audience will react and the more you know about that kind of particular medium the more you can kind of exploit it and figure out the kind of what are the weaknesses to kind of like pull on someone's emotions and I don't think there's like a director better in terms of like building suspense than Hitchcock and I think without that kind of suspense his films just wouldn't work at all because you wouldn't really care about the final solution or like revealing what
1: mystery it may be. But what do you think? Yeah, I think that you know certainly his nickname "Master of Suspense" is well deserved. He he is so in tune with the craft and the form of art make, uh, filmmaking. I mean, he's so uh, he can understand like how to yeah, manipulate the audience's emotions in a scene with a character, dialogue, whatever. Even the way he shoots it, it it can pull these different kinds of deeper fears out of you that anxiety provoking that normally people stay away from because that's typically uh, going to horror films or or more kind of uh, psychological thrillers Uh, but his films are always rooted in that sense of fear and, and building upon that and suspense and never leaving the audience at ease and so I think that and that's what makes it like fun and enjoyable watches because you're you're always questioning you're always wondering who the characters true what what the character's true motives are where they're going to be going, where where the plot's going to go. It, it is so unique in of itself. And uh, I think that he just really understands how to properly tell a story and how to use film to tell those stories. And when we talk about him and using some of his own quotes and, and talking about how he would build suspense, it's kind of a lengthy quote. But I think that this paints the picture of who Hitchcock was and where his mind as a creative was in order to build... And create such suspenseful scenes. So he said, there's a, there's a distinct difference between suspense and surprise, and yet many pictures continually confuse the two. I'll explain what I mean. We are now having a very innocent little chat. Let's suppose that there is a bomb underneath this table between us. Nothing happens, then all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. The public is surprised, but prior to this surprise, it has, it has seen an absolutely ordinary scene of no special consequences. Now let us take a suspenseful situation. The bomb is underneath the table and the public knows it, probably because they've seen the anarchists place it there. The public is aware the bomb is going to explode at one o'clock and there's a clock in the bomb. The public can see that it's a quarter to one. In these conditions, the same innocuous conversation becomes fascinating because the public is participating in the scene. The audience is longing to warn the characters on the screen. You shouldn't be talking about such trivial matters. There's a bomb beneath you and is about to explode. In the first case, we have given the public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion. And the second, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. The conclusion is that whenever possible, the public must be informed, except when the surprise is a twist. That is when the unexpected ending is, and in itself, the highlight of the story. And so that quote really breaks down how he approaches a scene and how he wants to create suspense in filmmaking. And, and it's perfectly laid out. And it also clicked and reminded me of a time when me and John were uh, in college together in one of our freshman year classes. And we watched a, a quick little thing where Hitchcock broke down a scene and uh, inserting a different shot in between two strips of films creates a totally different emotion for the second one. Uh, I can go into a whole description about that, but I'm not. But essentially, he is so, he knows so well how to create a scene and, and what to put in from an editing perspective as well to create different things that he doesn't really need the actors to do much because he could just see it all in his head in the camera in the editing room it's pretty remarkable so you know as an aspiring aspiring filmmaker yourself John you know I know that Hitchcock is probably a huge inspiration and even just like understanding how he would approach film in itself is there something that like you take away from either watching Hitchcock or some of his quotes and sayings that really stands out to you is like oh that makes perfect sense for how to use film I love the way that quote kind of Defines those two differences
0: because he uses suspense and surprise in a really strong way throughout his career. And I've only seen about like fifteen, I think percent of his his entire film catalog, but he has a lot of films. So I mean, that's a what, lot. That's probably like eight out of his like forty-four films. I forget what it is, but yeah, I, I love the way he kind of manipulates the audience in that way. And it is really knowing the difference between the audience knowing something or whether you want them to know something or you want to like hide your cards. And I kind of love that because that is kind of either being one step with the audience or making the audience the dominant narrator and kind of like knowing more than even our characters do. And that's like a such a hard thing to balance. And when he does it and he does it like perfectly in some of his films, it's it's mm, chef's kiss. You know, (laughs) it's like the perfect mixture of knowing enough, but knowing that there's something around the corner. And that's kind of like what builds that creepy tension. And I think it's kind of relates to even our film today where it's like making something so much in black and white. And then also having that darkness around you and not knowing what's in the darkness makes things even more scary. Like not seeing some things can be a lot scarier than actually seeing them directly. So I think he goes in his career with not as much acknowledgement as you would see, like throughout the time passes and the more people kind of like garner respect for him. And that's probably because of the way he was, pushing boundaries with the MPAA with like sex and violence and the way he was like so manipulative, but also the way that he was bending genres. And I think a way that a lot of people weren't comfortable with and a lot of ways that the Academy probably wasn't really used to, especially moving up to this point, going through like 11 films, there's not really a film close to a like horror film like, like ours today. So I know we wanted to talk a little bit about our favorite Hitchcock film and yeah I gotta go with Rear Window out of all the films that I've seen of his I've probably seen most of his iconic films that uh, you would probably like jump out uh, immediately and say and I think Rear Window really has every quality of a Hitchcock film I love there's like the sexual nature of uh, Jimmy Stewart and his his uh leading woman I forget her name right Grace now Kelly. Grace Kelly yes that's right beautiful Grace Kelly they're like amazing dynamic relationship which is all about you know whether they want to be married whether he wants to settle down but then you also have his amazing use of just building a psychological thriller and having James Stewart kind of like break down and slowly like reveal more and more about his inner character but also trying to like kind of figure out this mystery which obviously Hitchcock does so well is building up you know your different uh people and your different kind of like sections of uh, the world that he builds and then trying to figure out which puzzle piece goes where and which kind of steps lead back to the final trail and the final killer so I just love the use of his point of view throughout that film and throughout his whole career but that film is kind of like what all the pieces really come together.
1: Ben what is your favorite
0: uh, Hitchcock film?
1: Yeah I mean I've seen and and per, for the purposes of, of this podcast specifically I try to watch a ton of uh, er, more early Hitchcock films, but some later ones that I may not have seen and I still and you know I I'm still always going to go back to psycho. That was the first Hitchcock film that I ever saw. It, it's one of the early film early old Hollywood films that I saw when I was just getting really into film and the idea of being a part of production and, and creating And uh, psycho just has always stood out to me. there's something about, uh, just it's not even the way it's shot, and it's not even about the suspense. It's just the the idea behind it that, that we're going to talk about this psycho killer that we're going to go that he's the star of the movie. Really, that it's Anthony Perkins and 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 Norman Bates, and 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 it's such a well told story. And again, it goes back to how just how great Hitchcock is, just as a storyteller. He is he's done it across many different platforms, but he knows how to tell a story perfectly. And so for me, Psycho is just like one of those movies that i love the way the story is told i love how the fallout of everything the the implications of so many different things the i i love the suspense and the thrills of it you know just as much but i think there's a lot more to that film and uh so i just always go back to psycho in it and uh i've shown some people to their disliking uh, you know they didn't want to watch psycho I made my little sister watch it once And uh, I still am happy I did because she got to see one of the best movies ever. You know, a little horrified, so sorry to her, but it (laughs) is what it is. You know, I'm just trying to be the older brother that I am. But yeah, I mean, Hitchcock, I mean, we could pontificate and say all these great and wonderful things about him. We can say and go through his whole entire filmography and and just say like, yeah, he's the director's director. He's one of the best ever. Without him, there'd be no person A, B, you know, any of the great directors that we know of. There wouldn't be because of Hitchcock. But we're not going to do that right now. Instead, we're going to be talking about his only best picture winner, Rebecca. So John, is Rebecca worthy of the best picture award of 1940?
0: <laughs> Rebecca. A self-conscious woman juggles adjusting to her new role as an aristocrat's wife in avoiding being intimidated by his first wife's spectral presence.
1: An inexperienced young woman meets aristocratic widower Maxime de Winter at the French Riviera and soon becomes the second Mrs. de Winter. Maxime takes his new bride back to Manderley, his grand mansion by the sea in southwestern England, dominated by its housekeeper Mrs. Danvers, a chilly individual who had been a close confidant of the first Mrs. de Winter, Rebecca, with whom she is still clearly obsessed. She has even preserved Rebecca's grand bedroom suite unchanged and continues to display various items that carry her monogram.
0: Eventually, her constant reminders of Rebecca's glamour and sophistication convince the new Mrs. De Winter that Maxim is still in love with his first wife, which could explain his irrational outbursts of anger. She tries to please her husband by holding a costume party as he and Rebecca used to, danvers advises her to copy the dress that one of the maxim's ancestors is seen wearing in a portrait nevertheless when she appears in the costume maxim is appalled since rebecca has worn an identical dress at her last ball just before her death
1: mrs de winter confronts danvers about this but danvers tells her she can never take rebecca's place and almost persuades her to jump to her death from the second story window in rebecca's room at that moment however The alarm is raised because a ship has run aground due to the fog and in the rescue of its crew, a sunken boat has been discovered with Rebecca's body in it.
0: Maxim now confesses to his new wife that his first marriage had been a sham from the start when Rebecca had declared that she had no intention of keeping her vows, but would pretend to be the perfect wife and hostess for the sake of appearances. When she claimed she was pregnant by her cousin and lover, Jack Fable, she taunted Maxim that the estate might pass to someone other than Maxim's line. During a heated argument, she fell and struck her head and died. To conceal the truth, Maxim took the body out in the boat,
1: when he then scuttled and identified another body as Rebecca's. The crisis causes the second Mrs. DeWinner to shed her naive ways as they both plan to prove Maxim's innocence. When the police claim their possibility of suicide, Fable attempts to blackmail Maxim by threatening to reveal that she had never been suicidal. When Maxim goes to the police, they suspect him of murder. However, further investigation reveals that she was not pregnant, but terminally ill due to cancer, so a suicide verdict stands. Maxim realizes that Rebecca had been trying to goad him into killing her via indirect suicide so that Maxim would be ruined. A free man, Maxim
0: returns home to see Manderley on fire, set ablaze by the deranged Miss Danvers. All escape except Danvers, who dies when the ceiling collapses on her. Rebecca
1: starred... John Fontaine as Mrs. DeWinter. Laurence Olivier as Maxim DeWinter. Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers. George Saunders as Jack Faithel. Nigel Bruce as Major Gilles Lacey.
0: Reginald Denny as Frank Crawley. Gladys Cooper as Beatrice Lacey. Florence Bates as Mrs. Van Hopper.
1: Rebecca was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Produced by David O'Selznick. Music by
0: Franz Waxman. Cinematography by George Barnes Film Editing by W. Don Hayes Art Direction by Lyle R. Wheeler And William Cameron Menzies Costume Design by Irene Art Department by Howard Bristol Joseph B. Platt Illustrator Dorothea Holt
1: So that is the story of Rebecca the cast and crew And I wanted to start really with the thing that gave me the oh fuck factor after i watched uh, rebecca for the first time and i sort of i didn't want to talk about it with john before he watched it but it was my first question to him and that question was what is her name and her being joan fontaine's character the second mrs de winter she has no name and i never picked up on that fact while watching it the first time and so after i had finished watching it and after you know i had started looking up stuff about the movie I realized that she was never mentioned by name and just that whole idea of her being a nameless character and me being so involved in the movie and not even realizing that my mind was literally blown. And I think it's just a very interesting storytelling device. And I think that it leads for a very funny conversation of how do we call her in this podcast episode?
0: Yeah. You could always say the second Mrs. The Winter. I saw people just uh, say narrator when they were talking about her because she does open the film with narration over the awesome credit sequence which we'll probably talk about but yeah that is hard I think I noticed about halfway because I'm like why aren't they saying her name like that like I was like oh they'll probably say it in the first 30 minutes and then after 30 minutes I'm like what the hell is going on like and then once I realized what the actual film was about when we got to the in and the mansion and we're meeting everyone and everything's about Rebecca up until that point I just assumed that her main character's name was Rebecca and they just weren't saying it and then it wasn't until we got there and I'm like uh okay that's what this whole film is about and and just trying to like pin her against this woman that she's never met that we'll never meet that's just like ominous force that's just hanging over her so I think that's what actually it's a good point to talk about with Hitchcock is that he's so good at adapting novels because I think he just thinks in such a cinematic way that when he reads things and he, like thinks about how to digest that And spit it out in like a cinematic language He's just so good at doing that So like yeah. for instance this book was probably just In first person and the second Mrs. De Winter is just talking us through This experience so You can't really do that too well without Like voiceover or like kind of And I feel like the way he integrates it Without saying her name at all and not Giving her a name it becomes Like a blank veil Of her character right where you can like step Into her shoes and experience what she's experiencing. And it also kind of like demystifies or really mystifies her. So she kind of loses her identity, right? And she like starts to kind of, it adds to the kind of psychosis of her not really understanding her place in this mansion and her life with Maxim. And it it adds definitely to that suspense and and tension that we keep talking about.
1: Yeah. So it definitely adds to her identity and how Joan Fontaine is supposed to like interact in this world. But I want to hold off that conversation and a little about uh, Rebecca's presence in the film Because I had some ideas of what we could call the second Mrs. DeWinter. Oh, yeah. Give it to me. So we could just call her Mrs. DeWinter. We could call her Mrs. Could be your first name. We just go with the plain Joan, you know, for just Joan Fontaine and keep it simple. But these are my two favorite. I was thinking maybe the second or to even go further, Junior. Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like Junior at all. Junior? Junior doesn't work for you? <laughs> no. It just makes
0: me think of Indiana Jones. So I, That's it, true. It just throws me off. Yeah.
1: So I think we're going to call this character a bunch of different names. Uh, but I guess for right now, we'll just call her Mrs. DeWinter. And we'll refer to the first Mrs. DeWinter as just Rebecca. But that may change once in a while. So if it seems like we're talking about the same character, but it doesn't seem to match at all, that is why. So you mentioned before about Rebecca's presence and that's where I wanted to start whole conversation. It's right where the movie starts. And that is this is a very beloved sequence where it's this, it's the shot of Manderley, and it goes kind of up in the driveway and in and out of it. And it shows this like really great gloomy yet a rundown version of Manderly. And it's a whole miniature. It looks really cool. Well, Hitchcock did a great job filming it and bring you, through the whole of the property and giving you a good understanding of it but overlaid that is this monologue and you assume safely that it's the that it's Mrs. De Winter, it's Joan Fontaine's character and that's how most people read it right I wanted to read this though as if it's Rebecca saying this and I wanted to read the quote there's a lot in it it's a great opening monologue and really sets it up and I just wanted to see John what you think of maybe the interpretation that Rebecca's ghost is the first character that we meet. and It's the only time we ever hear her and get this like understanding of, of just her. The film begins last night. I dreamed I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me. I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive and for a while I could not enter for the way was barred to me. Then like all dreamers, I was possessed with a sudden supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive round away in front of me, twisting and turning as I'd always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers, on and on around the poor thread that had once been our drive. And finally, there was Manderley. Manderly, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy, and suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows, and then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered in an instant like a dark hand before her face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell. With no whisper of the past about its staring walls, we can never go back to Manderley again, that much is certain. But sometimes in my dreams, I do go back to that strange days of my life, which began for me in the south of France. Very creepy. And it's, really, it's told really well And it's shot really well as we said And to me what, what stands out about this Is this like It's a very loving approach and view of Manderly And Mrs. De Winter Joan Fontaine's character I don't think she ever really has that kind of love for it Ever You know How long do you think she's really at Manderly over the film It's probably like a month maybe Yeah a month or two So all of a sudden she's creating such great memories about it And like she didn't really leave the property that much And when she did, you know, she's going through that whole trial with Maxime You know, where they're trying to figure out if what happened to Rebecca If it was a murder or suicide So this whole opening quote, people are like, yeah, that's just like Mrs. De Winter It's Joan's character I think it's Rebecca I think that this is some kind of Rebecca's ghost Maybe I'm pulling a little bit too much Uh, There's a little bit more that I think is evidence to it. And I think that's the last line where she says, which began for me in the south of France. And if you kind of skipping ahead a little bit, so Maxime reveals like everything that had happened between Rebecca and him. And he says that she had told him on their honeymoon, these like secretive clues and we'll speculate on what those clues were on this cliffside in the south of France, which is where we first meet Maxime and Joan's character. And it looks like Maxine was going to jump from that cliffside. So it's just like maybe reading a little too much into it. But it's pretty ghostly. It's pretty airy. And and I just think that that to deny that Rebecca's ghost is in this movie, I think it would just be too easy.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I honestly never even thought about that. I mean, the whole film has like a kind of like ghostly presence of Rebecca because that's the kind of film it is really telling a story about someone without really actually showing or like revealing that character. Yeah. Which is really interesting and it really kind of questions that kind of storytelling. And I think it's really unique. I don't, I don't know if I've really seen a film that really dives that deep into a character without really like revealing, showing flashbacks or really diving deep into it. And it's really interesting that you think that it could be the ghost. I mean, up until when you said that, I was like, okay, let me like really listen to every word and every sentence and try to break it down in my head. And what that kind of kind of breakdown and relate to her being Rebecca and not our, our narrator but it wasn't until that last line where I'm like, oh well the she darkly says South of France, that's where they met in the honeymoon. Like to me that kind of like seals the deal that it is our narrator, our Mrs. DeWinter, and not Rebecca. But that's interesting that you add those elements of her talking or Maxine talking about Rebecca, which I just completely don't remember from the, the movie at all, really. So that's really interesting. And before that last line, I was like, you were like convincing me after saying that because I was reading it and it's saying that she can go up to it but she can't enter at first. And then when I think of ghosts, I'm thinking like, okay, what are ghosts? Ghosts are usually like the dead soul or presence of someone who once lived. And usually they're only around and human can see them because they're, there's something left unfinished, right? There's yeah. some secret. There's something that they're like, like
1: haunting something.
0: Yeah, there's something that they need resolved in order for them to, to be free, go to heaven, whatever it is. And maybe that's kind of what this film is all about. I mean, it is essentially to its core trying to figure out that mystery. Maxine kind of revealing or even himself learning more about his, his dead wife at this point and revealing the true fate of her death and her true story is what kind of frees her and allows her to go back to Manderley. And then when you go further into that quote, and she's talking about like the desolate shell, there's no whisper. There's just she mentions how there's walls and windows, but like it could also be that she's seeing the burnt down, dilapidated version of the of the mansion, of what it used to be. So it is interesting. You also said that you know she's not looking back on it fondly, which is kind of the case. But I I don't even know if I would even say that this is very fondly looking back on it. It's kind of just like reminiscing and thinking about like very dark times in your life almost and it definitely sets like such an ominous creepy tone and mood with like the the opening credits kind of like fading in and out and like you said like the mansion kind of like fading with fog in the background and it's it's very evil dead way before evil dead (laughs) ever existed like 40 years later yeah it's, it's a really awesome creepy opening but i love that take on on it being rebecca that's kind of speaking to us instead of our narrator
1: Yeah, I I think it just, again, like, yeah, it adds to the creepiness and it's just something, a way to interpret that beginning. But let's move on. So we, I I don't know if, like, we should just go this, like, through the story. I don't know if you have a scene in particular you really want to jump into because there's kind of a lot. There's a lot of, like, cool things that happen in the beginning. uh, But some of the juicier stuff happens, like, a little bit later in the film.
0: Yeah, the film doesn't really, like, show itself until after the first act. So, I mean, I'm curious what you thought was interesting about the first like third or the first act of the film Because I thought that was the worst part of the whole movie Really so I'm. I'm you jump in And you tell yeah. me what well, you liked about that
1: Yeah we, we talked about that and For me I think that this movie Needs to be watched like a second time You need to watch it like two times because the first Time and maybe it was just the way I took it in I just didn't Again, like I didn't even realize that she was a nameless character. So the fact that that was going on made me just want to go look back at it. And there's just like a lot of like little things, like a lot of lines and dialogue that interweaves itself in really adds to just adds more and more to the, the sinisterness of the film. And so so we open up and the film is the film opens up with uh, Joan Fontaine's character with this other character named Mrs. Van Hopper. She's this American character. She's a socialite. She's a little brash. And they meet. So basically, uh, Joan Fontaine's character is like her personal assistant, like secretary for this trip. Uh, But she's given a very interesting name, and that's a paid companion. And even Maxime says, I didn't know companionship could be bought. So to me, that alerts so many different things, especially because we'll be touching upon the whole mysterious Danvers and Rebecca relationship like that, there's a lot of, uh, you know, lesbian undertones uh, within the film. So immediately when you open up and you have this, you know, the main character, she's this female companion, she's a paid companion to this other woman. And it's, uh, it, it just adds to that, like potential theory that there was some kind of lesbian relationship i don't know if 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 you got got anything out of that from mrs van hopper because i really because she's not really in it for much but she kind of sets up the first layer of uh of suspense within the film
0: not from her no when we talk about mrs danvers later i think we can i can dive personally of, of me kind of getting those feelings and her love for rebecca but yeah no i i mean i honestly really just didn't get too much out of like the first act of the film i just felt like it went so slow for what it ended up establishing which is really just their relationship getting us to Manderly in the mansion and I didn't really buy their relationship I didn't really understand I mean you could see now looking back why he would want someone else to kind of like take him away from that sadness the loss of Rebecca but I don't really get why she likes him I don't really understand where their romance even like kind of comes into play they skip over their honeymoon so it's like you just kind of jump into it. And for me, then it's like, why not just start the movie at the house? And then like, if you're (laughs) going to show their honeymoon and talk about why they fell in love or how they fell in love, like might as well just skip to like the most interesting aspects of the film. But I don't know, maybe I am missing like small context clues that kind of lead overall to the the major story.
1: Yeah. I think that's a fair criticism to see like, why not just start after a certain point. And a lot of it kind of is unnecessary. And again, it's more just adding context. You know, you get, you do get to know a little bit more about about Fontaine's character. You know, she, her father in the movie had passed away a year before. Her mother had died at a young age, so she's sort of an orphan in this world. We don't really know her age. I think she's like in her early twenties, maybe. I think she's very young. And uh, then Max, twenty-five. Yeah, he's much older. Right yeah, now. like because he, they, there's a line where he says, "Promise me you'll never wear black satin or pearls or be thirty-six years old." So I think that Maxime is at least in his late 30s so there's a huge age gap and which was very common for the time uh, so this so that kind of like weird romance and age gap was pretty common and maybe just wasn't questioned at the time because it that's just what it was so they yeah so they could have skipped over that but you also just get to keep building up the suspense who's rebecca who is maxime where is this woman going to like does she really doesn't understand so yeah, so she kind of, so she's able to get a relationship with Maxime, which I don't know if she wasn't really intending that at all, but Mrs. Van Hopper kind of judges her and really gives this great monologue to her, and it's the last time you ever see Mrs. Van Hopper, and she gives this great line, how did you manage it, still waters certainly run deep, and then she says some more things, and then end of it, she just goes, Hmph, Mrs. DeWinter, and it's this really just great thing because as Fontaine, she doesn't really know what she's getting herself into. Van Hopper kind of understands who the DeWinters are, Amanda Lee, and who Rebecca was. So she is already being judged to have to live up to this idea and, and being the second Mrs. DeWinter. And her identity is still being her, – her whole identity is mixed throughout the entire film. It's never stable. It's really hard for the audience to be, to be calm and relaxed because you're on edge. You're like, who is this person? What's going to happen? So it kind of just sets those big themes that we're going to see in the rest of the film. It's just like a microcosm in the first act. But yeah, it's certainly not the most engaging part, but it just adds more and more uh, to the film as you would rewatch it over and over again.
0: Definitely. So I want to ask you just a general question. if, if there are a movie that's kind of similar, not just like in, in terms of like Hitchcock references, but creating a film that's about a character, like I said, that you never see. That you just kind of talk about that they kind of hint towards and and they don't really build upon you ever meeting or seeing that character is there a film that kind of is similar in that vein because to me this is like an only movie i could really think of that was like this and for me it kind of uh it's like a dual-sided sword because i think it's so interesting that that this is their attempt to do that but at the same time like I don't want that in a film, I don't think. Like I yeah. I want some more reveals. Like, I want to like get to know a character and this is a this is a, a visual medium. Like I want to experience it. Like this is why flashbacks exist for a reason and it's it's like a tease that I just don't think pays off for me in this movie. And it's it becomes frustrating to a point where it's like everything about this movie is so well done and like the direction, the acting, the way it looks. We'll talk about the cinematography, it's gorgeous, but like the core concept of the film I think just doesn't work for me and I don't know why that is
1: so two things two examples kind of come to mind uh, because I knowing me I'm gonna fit this in there Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. Uh, not more specifically the book so in the books you really don't know who Sauron is being the main villain you only get perspectives of the heroes so they're always fighting this force and it's just like an evil force you don't really know Sauron and in the movies you have a visual representation of him at times throughout, but he never really says anything. So that's one that jumps to mind. And another one is in, and it's a, and it's by a director who I was telling you about that I think does Hitchcocky and type of things. And that's Hereditary, where you don't meet the grandmother at all, but the grandmother is constantly talked about throughout the entire film. And and it's really at the end you get a better sense of like what was happening the entire time uh, in Hereditary. So it's very similar to Rebecca, where you don't know much until the the very end, and um, so those those are just like two you know stories that come to mind. That's like okay, that's similar to how Rebecca's story structure is. So, how
0: did you enjoy that just as a concept for a film? Not not getting like a final reveal in the way that you would say using another Hitchcock film. Like, imagine we don't see him as his mother, right? Like, imagine if like we just find out that he's the killer but like he dies or something like that like we don't get that like reveal like not that we actually have to physically see this character how do you feel about a film that kind of focuses on someone that
1: we never meet and that's the core concept of the film oh i love that i don't know i'm really into to the the mystery and and leaving things in suspense you know i think of some of my some of my favorite movies are suspense. I love hereditary. I think about like Rosemary's baby. You have no idea what the fuck Rosemary's baby is really happening until you finally see what the baby, I don't think you've ever seen Rosemary's baby. No, I'm nursing. So ever. I'm not going to really spoil it, but it, you just don't know until the end of like what's really happening until yeah. you finally see that ending. And I, I just really like movies that do that, 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 that leave you in, until the final last second. You're like, Oh, that, that's what was happening in the, uh, I, I I just particularly enjoy that. And Hitchcock, he does obviously the suspense really well, and so he does this really well, just leaving you right up until the edge, uh, into the end. Well, really the edge, I guess, for some yeah, of the aspects. Yeah, <laughs> aspect. definitely. Yeah, with a film, but yeah, I think we can probably move on out of the opening and, and into the more middle part. So, so we to speak about the cinematography. The there's this really great shot of when Fontaine and and Olivia's character are driving up the driveway of Manderly and it starts to rain and you get a great POV shot through the window of the car of Manderly as it's raining. And it's just really well thought out of. And and the miniatures are really cool. I don't know if they're using projectors even. Uh, So there's just a lot of thought into the special effects of how to like pull everything off uh, with the film.
0: Definitely. I mean, it's the same man, Jack. Cosgrove, who did the special effects and the amazing visual effects for Gone with the Wind. So we have that kind of carryover from our last Best Picture winner and some of the most incredible visuals from that film. Definitely get carried over to this film with the art direction, the amazing uh, use of like projectors in the backgrounds, using miniatures. And I know that was kind of a, a headbutting moment for. Hitchcock coming from the art department was where he kind of started out before he became a director and using miniatures was very common for him and knowing how to kind of bring that into a film as the director was something that he really wanted to use and something that he wanted to kind of like help to, to pull off Manderley and pull off this huge big structure in this kind of looming ominous uh, mansion so I think that really plays off so well. But like I said a little bit earlier, the use of black and white, I think, is is so important to this film. And I read that Hitchcock adamantly pushed and pressured Selznick to make this black and white because it adds to this ominous kind of like black and white morality, like the shadows of Manderley, the mansion, and how it kind of like looms on, on the coast and how... The shadows and the fog add to this kind of dimension of of the black and white, and you have these like dark, intense shadows when you're inside Manderley. How Manderley is like so overwhelming. How the fire uh, or the ch- the yeah the fireplace is like
1: taller than the characters. Yeah. Like it's not like a ten foot fireplace. It's insane. Yeah. Anything that can possibly have a shadow will have a shadow in this movie. And the lighting, I think, is you know lighting and cinematography go hand in hand. But we always talk about cinematography. But the lighting in this movie is amazing it's yeah it's incredible it, yeah you know they they do such a great job uh, you know with the out of focus shots and then the deep focus shots and the way that light you know there's a scene where uh it's like kind of the first scene where Fontaine is uh she gets dressed and it's Danvers comes into the room and it's kind of her first time walking with Danvers in the hallways of Manderley and just the way the the sun splashes into through the windows and the way it makes this like Very, it looks like kind of underwater. It looks really cool, and so anything that, yeah, again, like anything that any light can manipulate, it's gonna be manipulated by Hitchcock in this movie. Oh, definitely, it's
0: it's beautiful, and the use of like eye lighting, which is like so common throughout this film, of just like hitting each actor, uh, whether male or female, like perfectly in the in the eyes, where it's kind of creates this beautiful glisten, which I don't think we've talked too much. It's definitely really common throughout the best picture winners that we've seen so far, but it is so powerful and the use of shadow is the way they kind of like cut off characters, cut, cut off parts of the mansion is really beautiful. And, and speaking of cinematography, you mentioned deep focus. And for those who don't know, deep focus is a photographic technique which is using uh, depth of field. And with depth of field, it's creating this uh, front and back range of focus. So normally when you think of depth of field, you think of an image in focus with a background out of focus or the foreground and focus with a background out of focus but what deep focus is doing is creating this really dynamic and almost unnatural image where our human eye can't perceive a focus that's something really close to us while also focusing on on a distance or an object very far away but what deep focus does is use like a really small aperture in order to really almost get everything in frame and focus which is this weird kind of disorienting feeling where it almost feels like everything's a miniature even if it's not a miniature it like makes you feel almost uncomfortable because it's unnatural in a way like no one can really see the world in the way that deep focus looks so how do you feel about that kind of use and technique in this film
1: oh i like it i like when things are layered it was it was not used at all really and citizen kane kind of gets that do with like oh that was the first one they used deep focus photography
0: exactly and this is before citizen Kane. a year before and we'll definitely talk about how the two are really really similar
1: yeah yeah so it came out a year before but yeah i i just i enjoy that i i don't really have a preference but i think that it's a really i think it's like a great way to show off a film and especially when today when we have great cameras that can show off anything even to the smallest of of blemishes the, just the way that this was shot and like and it makes kind of like it feel grander than it actually is oh definitely um you know it really adds to because Manderley's supposed to be this big mansion but you know potentially with other films and filmmakers they wouldn't be able to capture that grandiose you know feeling of it but and Hitchcock was able to do that and using the deep focus uh, photography really help with that so yeah it, it really works and, and and again like it adds to the set piece of of Manderly and it it makes it feel like there are a lot more people in it as well there are, which, which adds more to that sinisterism is cynicism i don't want to say it's cynicism but sinister s sinister, sinisterism. i'm seeing a lot of sinister and isms <laughs> but anyways there are some really cool, you really just get to see these side characters, but it makes it feel like, again, like a movie like Hereditary or a movie like Midsummer, where there's just these characters kind of just staring at you, and it, it's uncomfortable, and uh, it's, it's good, though. It's good because it makes you really on edge.
0: Oh, yeah, I could definitely see this film in 1940 being, like, really scary, probably being, like, unlike anything they've really seen, and I didn't really talk about this in the very beginning, but people always talk about how Hitchcock would go on and kind of inspire our legendary directors that are still alive with us, like, you know, De Palma, Spielberg, all these huge iconic directors, Tarantino with his use of like POV and all these characters or all these uh, directors have kind of borrowed from his style and used it in their own unique way while also kind of, you know, paying homage to him. But I think we don't talk about too much of, you know, this is 1940. We've had almost 40 years of, maybe even 30 if you want to talk about Hollywood and and those particular films and and the Academy, but we've had time now to kind of see films, and Hitchcock was definitely inspired in his own career. And I was I don't know specifically a director you could point to, but I think you could really point to Universal and the Universal Monsters that kind of started in the 1930s as like a gateway to Hitchcock's career. It's the way that they kind of use light and dark – and the, the kind of psychological nature, it was just that at those times about even 10 years ago with how fast film is changing that, you know, it wasn't as inventive in terms of the way it was shot and the way that the camera moved, you know, these earlier films like Mummy or Dracula are, are really great. And I think they still hold up, but they're, they're pretty slow from what you would expect from a thriller or a horror film. Like it's a lot of static images, which adds to the tension, but we don't get the use of perspective and um, you know point of view that the way Hitchcock does, the way he kind of takes you behind the narrator's eyes essentially you know guide her through Manderley in this house and and just like you said, the, the, the use of eyes and the way they kind of like stare and haunt you and she feels constantly watched throughout the film and on, on edge and that really adds to us as the audience feeling on edge and, and being really placed into her her shoes so so well I think' it's just a huge testament to
1: to Hitchcock as a director. So, speaking of like sinister people and, and things staring at you, let's talk about Danvers as a character. Our villain here. Yeah. Know,
0: and what does Hitchcock say about villains, Benjamin?
1: Hitchcock said, the more successful the villain, the more successful the picture. We talked about Immunity on the Bounty, how good uh, Captain Bly was. And, you know, it, we both really liked the movie, so it made a really fun picture. And Danvers does not disappoint. Or as one person likes to call her, Danny. Which uh, just made me go, ugh. You know, I don't want to call Mrs. Danvers Danny. And where's Mr. Danvers, by the way? Why is she Mrs.? She She ate him.
0: No, she killed him. (laughs) (laughs) Did she? I don't know. I'm assuming that's part of her backstory. I mean, that's the way I kind of took it. That's really taking a huge leap. But she's so sinister. Like, Judith Anderson is probably my favorite performance in this film. Yeah. Because she probably has the most to chew on, uh, to give her credit. Like, she's just such an interesting character. And she's the one that kind of you can break down and... And we can talk about some of those like homoerotic aspects of this film and yeah, with the challenges that like Hitchcock and Selznick ran into with the MPAA and really trying to make this film as accurate to the novel as possible, but also kind of fighting with being able to really truly make it as accurate as possible. And I think Miss Danvers adds to that the way they change her character a little bit. I know she's uh, much younger in the novel and I think making her older and more intimidating is, is kind of a great tactic as, as a casting choice and, the, the way judith anderson has this like blank stare her yeah. like eyes never blink i don't think you see her eyes blink like once throughout this her entire eyebrows film. are
1: like always raised too always yeah. raised, yeah her performances a lot of the performances i would actually say that th- the three main uh performances are really they're really good emotive actors and they really understand how to use facial expressions i think that that really plays a huge part in hitchcock's films as well starting
0: out in silent film i think it yeah. definitely is yeah
1: yeah 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 100 percent so so yes, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Mrs. Danvers. So speaking of her backstory, we do get the line that she had came to Manderley when Rebecca was a new bride. And there's there is constant references that, that Rebecca and Danvers had a very close relationship. You had Maxime's uh, sister. She's Beatrice, she said that she simply adored Rebecca, meaning Danvers. There are other references that, that they, were, they were just really close. And it kind of all culminates in this what, a scene that everyone probably knows if you know the film. But it's when Danvers is showing the second Mrs. DeWinter, the first Mrs. DeWinter's room. And it's a part of the house that that they were not using at all uh, at the beginning. So when Fontaine's character gets there, uh, Danvers tells her, you're in the west wing of the house. Or is it the east wing? It's in the east wing of the house because they can see it from the west. And in the West Wing is where Rebecca was, and you're able to see the sea from there. But they don't use that anymore, so obviously uh, Maxime doesn't want to go in there. But Danvers has basically kept that room where Rebecca slept and used to get dressed and do her makeup exactly how it was when Rebecca the night Rebecca died, uh, which is very creepy. And there's that clear obsession right there. And so, so, so the scene starts with uh, with Fontaine coming to the room and. All of a sudden there it just comes out of nowhere is Danvers. There's that like kind of ghost factor. It's her again. glide. She never yeah.
0: It doesn't feel like she's ever walking. She just kind of like yeah. glides like a ghost in and out.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a big thing I want to connect all that to at the end of this. But yeah, so she kind of like glides and very free flowing. And so she starts showing off the room and it's like, look at this. Look how great this is. And it's really and she kind of like uses a lot of hand signals. And it's hard to describe on a podcast, but she uses like that hand signal with like, come here. Come closer. Come take a look. Yeah, like beckoning. Totally, yeah, it's yeah. like a stranger telling a kid, "Come here. Come to the van." Oh, I, God, no. I mean, that's what it is. It's it's that suspense and it's building and, and building up. And so Danvers, uh, she first shows off a uh, shows off some of her clothes, but specifically she shows her underwear, Rebecca's old underwear, and saying how it was custom made. So. That being one of the only clothes being shown to her. And then she takes out a fur jacket and she shows off this jacket and it's this like fur coat. And she starts, Danvers starts rubbing the jacket on her face. And then she just, she doesn't like slap it on, but she just puts it right onto Fontaine's face. And it's like, yeah, can you feel that? She's like torturing her. Yeah.
0: It's fucked up. Yeah. It's disturbing. Well,
1: it's disturbing for Fontaine who doesn't really say anything throughout this entire thing. And uh, then Danvers says that she would, Wait up all night for Rebecca when she would be out with Maxime. Even she probably wasn't out of Maxime all the time because, as we get to know more and more, she was this—you uh, know, she she had a lot of affairs and probably was sleeping with a lot of different people. And then it kind of transitions into where the bed is, and uh, Danvers says how she would embroider R's on all the cl- on pillowcases, on napkins, whatever. And finally, she pulls out uh, this what looks like just a piece of cloth. And she's like, look how delicate this is. And you realize that it's lingerie and you realize that it's this like very see-through lingerie and Danvers is very infatuated by it. And it's like, look at this. You can just barely, you can like kind of see my hand through this. And it's, and it just adds more to this delicacy of it and adds to this whole, that Danvers is fucking obsessed with Rebecca and clearly, you know, really like that one piece of lingerie on her. So it's sort of hard to not, you know, say that there is a lesbian relationship there because it, it really is all right there. And, and it, a lot of people talked about it and it, it, there's a lot you can take out of it because then you get into this whole 1940s taboo idea of homosexuality and, and how they couldn't really show that or how that was completely inappropriate for the time to be shown. So how even homosexuality was like all quote unquote horror for the time, which just isn't the case at all and uh so it it's but in, at the end though it, it is still very suspenseful it is really uh hard for fontaine's character to kind of be in there because she is completely creeped out regardless if there are homo undertones or not so uh what do you think of that scene like it's it's very intense
0: yeah it's a great way to just to, to set up her character really both of their characters and it's that it makes it more disturbing because it's like she's almost being like really nice to her but you can clearly tell that it's like she's intentionally trying to make her uncomfortable by being like overly nice and constantly like pitting her against this person who's yeah she's like saying
1: like this is what rebecca had this yeah like
0: will you you match up to this person like will you be on this level
1: not even like will you it's like you won't match up to this oh yeah like Like, there's no chance that you'll have
0: any of these amazing things Yeah. yeah no that that's yeah i mean it's what builds to the tension and it's like she becomes a a suspect once you kind of like figure it out or you're trying to like figure out if she could be the one who's kind of involved with the murder and she's just terrifying I mean like we've talked about the way she kind of glides in and out of the film and she's always kind of feels like a a presence even when she's like not on screen you kind of feel that uh, the narrator Joan Fontaine's kind of like constantly waiting for her to turn around the corner and I think it really plays to Fontaine's performance too where she's just you can clearly tell she's so uncomfortable but she's just a really sweet nice girl who just like wants to not be making any conflict like miss danver's like oh uh you know mrs de winter really like this kind of sauce like what do you want tonight for your your roast beef or whatever like what sauce do you want she's like "Uh, uh i don't i don't know i'm not used to picking sauces i don't know what you're talking about like whatever rebecca previously wanted and it's again she's just constantly like putting this comparison immediately and You talked about her embroidering the R's, and I think that's kind of like a symbol that's constantly shown throughout this film, kind of like looming over the narrator and and Mrs. Fontaine here, who's just constantly reminded of this presence and and how to kind of compare herself or how she'll really never be that worthy of Maxim's love.
1: Yeah, and and so that's exactly what the scene kind of like pulls out, and it it fucks more with the identity of of Mrs. De Winter and who she's supposed to be because she's supposed to be Mrs. De Winter, but she's really not adding more to that nameless identity that how it's always changing, how there are so many different characters in this movie that kind of, that kind of put her into different boxes. You have Maxine putting her into being like, Oh, you're just this great loving wife. You're this new thing for me. Danvers is like, you're replacing the thing that I love the most. You have uh, a sister being like, you're not exactly what I thought you were going to be. You're a little more common than that, which is like fine. So now you have Maxine, now you have uh, Fontaine being like, well, who am I? Like, how do I fit in with all this? And she really doesn't during the story. And, and I think that like what is what adds to it. But that scene ends on a very haunting note. So Danvers kind of just says to Fontaine, listen to the sea, listen to the sea, listen. And so Fontaine runs out of the room, but Danvers stays in the room. And it's this pulled out shot of the rest of the room of Danvers kind of in front of this white curtain. Which is a very famous shot. A lot of people use that on social media. Be like, this is Rebecca. And like, that's the shot. That Criterion they... cover, I think, is that. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's a really cool shot. Uh, you hear the sea in the background. I don't know if like, I know people, you know, have used like a veil as for many different ways, but it could be like the veil, like to the afterlife. You know, it's this pure thing. It's, the, you know, cause it's a white veil. It's see-through. So maybe Danvers is trying to connect with that Rebecca's ghost. And she even says, like, I can almost hear her sometimes. Her She almost said like it's her little feet. So she had this like this childlike infatuation with her. It's just so it's so creepy and bizarre and and fascinating to watch. And uh, it makes her a really cool villain. So the the movie continues on. And so now Fontaine is like, how do I you know make this my house? How do I make Manderly mine? She orders all of Rebecca's things to be taken out of the house, which is like good on her. And she even says, I am Mrs. DeWinter now. So she she kind of like wants to embrace that identity. Oh yeah, it's a great line. Yeah, thing, too. It's very powerful. Yeah, it really, it really like you know solidifies her that she's like, okay, I'm gonna finally do this, and so she then she decides to put on this like ball, and so Rebecca had always put on these like masquerade balls and costume balls, and Danvers kind of is like, oh, I know how to fuck with you, and she tells Re- uh Font, I want to call her Rebecca, but she's not Rebecca. She tells Fontaine's character. Oh well, you can dress up as this ancestor of the DeWinters, and you come to find out that Rebecca had done that a year before. So when Max Maxime sees uh, his wife wearing this exact same dress that Rebecca had worn a year before, he's completely horrified, and he's like, "Get that off!" And so now you now get this like second great creepy scene with Danvers and Mrs. Uh, DeWinter because she's like, "How you know? How dare you tell me to like dress up like this?" And Danvers is you know basically. Being like, you will never live up to her. And she, they're like in this room. And all of a sudden, Danvers opens up a window. And she says, you're overwrought, madam. I've opened a window for you. A little air will do you good. Why don't you go? Why don't you leave Manderley? He doesn't need you. He's got his memories. He doesn't love you. He wants to be alone again with her. You've got nothing to stay for. You've got nothing to live for, really, have you? Look down there. It's easy, isn't it? Why don't you, why don't you go on, go on, don't be afraid. And so this whole time, then you have Fontaine slowly coming up to the window and you have Danvers behind her creepily whispering these sweet nothings to her. And it's like, is she really going to jump and force her and not force her, but make her commit suicide? And it's really intense. And yeah, for 1940, that was probably scary to watch someone being like goading someone else to be like, go kill yourself. Jump out. Yeah. yeah. die,
0: Yeah. And, and also having like Hitchcock knowledge and Psycho specifically, you're like, damn, she might jump out the window right yeah. now. Like I've seen Psycho, like our main fucking protagonist dies like a third or halfway through the film. So like this could happen. And that was a fun little like knowledge of Hitchcock made that even stronger and deeper because it really kind of put me on edge. Cause I really don't know what to expect because he loves these kind of twists and surprises. But yeah, that was maybe like one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie. Now, is this the scene that kind of freeze frames and then crash cuts into the ocean or was that previously? No, when that, she that, was would, talking? that was the scene previously. Yeah, that was the, the scene driving, previously. Right? Yeah. I wanted to just mention that just cause it was quite shocking. I mean, I, that, it was so experimental from any film that we've seen so far out of the best picture winners. Like, there was nothing close to as experimental as that. I mean, doing a yeah. freeze frame and then like cutting to this weird kind of fade transition into the ocean with the sound effect and the music. It was jarring Citizen and disturbing. Kane sort of does that. Yeah. Well, a year later, yeah, a year later. We can definitely talk about those. I do. I'm not going to end this yeah. podcast <laughs> without talking about how similar this movie is. To right.
1: That. But what's more important, and I think it also ties well to Citizen Kane is that it talks more about Hitchcock as a filmmaker is that he was willing to take such risk and he was willing to experiment and he really I'm sure if Hitchcock was around today, he would be all over the LED walls, the the CGI oh, yeah. he could use. All, oh, yeah. Anything that 4K cameras, probably 10K cameras, he'd be like anything that he could probably get his hands on, he would use. So he was sort of limited by the technology of his time, but then he used that to forward the technology of the time because they realized that, oh, we can do more. Because guys like Hitchcock are telling us that we can do more. Definitely.
0: That, is, that it is possible that like that is a way of storytelling. And I think relating him to a modern master or master of suspense or master of really cinema in general, like Scorsese, the way he's consistently kind of pushed his filmography in ways that are creative. Like he embraces technology while knowing its limitations and he continues to like push technology and try to be much uh, really as experimental as possible. And I think that's a great, like, relation uh, to Hitchcock that he kind of has continued on throughout his career. But, yeah, it's just, uh, those two scenes of Mrs. Danvers, like, I think that, like, perfectly solidifies the the film, really. Like, watching those two scenes kind of, like, sets you up of what kind of dynamic and how uncomfortable you are throughout the film and how uncomfortable you are just, like, walking with the narrator and how really well it really places you in that scene, I think is just a perfect contrast to Miss Danvers and her... Her look wearing like that sleek all black yeah
1: well it, she's like in mourning almost exactly there. like throughout the entire film but it hasn't it's been like a year too since like I don't Rebecca dies. well she still keeps everything exactly how Rebecca wanted exactly it. So that's yeah. a sign of not getting over it uh, there's actually another reference to mourning that I thought was really on the nose and uh, so where Rebecca would do like her morning correspondence this was the Frith who's like the butler of Manderley was kind of telling um, the second Mrs. De Winter and he says she would do it in the morning room. And I'm like, oh, the morning room, like, you know, <laughs> like you're mourning for someone. But yeah, so that they just have these like really like on the nose things that are pretty dark. There's even a line where Maxime's brother-in-law is talking to the second Mrs. DeWinter, kind of questioning her. And he says a line like, uh, oh, you ride, you're like, you're riding a horse, right? And he's like, how do you ride side saddle or stride? <laughs> interesting i don't even remember that line yeah interesting yeah well that's what i'm saying about this movie like takes like um a couple watch throughs and i know that's probably hard for a common moviegoer, like someone who's not into film like us to just be like i have to watch this movie so many times just to get it and it's like sometimes movies are like that it's like a book you sometimes have to do multiple interpretations of it and and read throughs of it and watch throughs to really understand what the thematic aspects of it are. So this is just like one of those movies that I think it deserves a lot of run throughs. And I think that most of that kind of goes to the, and I said it before, like the, the main performers. So we kind of covered Judith Anderson and Danvers, but I think we should talk about Lawrence Olivier right now because he gives a very subtle performance. And I know that you haven't seen much of him and I haven't seen much of him either, but I think a little bit more uh, than you have. And it's a really just like steady and good performance there's nothing flawed about it at all and it all climaxes in this like big monologue he gives revealing what happened to Rebecca what happened that night and he gives this really great monologue and it's well uh paced and I well that was one of the issues that Selznick had with Olivier as the main actor was because Olivier came from this this stage background that he really knew how to be an actor's actor on the stage and as a play and Hitchcock probably really liked that and liked that he was able to give a, a breath and an air to the performance where Selznick was like, no, we just got to keep this going. We got to keep the machine moving mm-hmm. of Hollywood because I got to make my next big movie. And which is like fine in and of itself. But Olivia gives a really good performance and, and that scene in particular is really great. So that scene is the climactic point of the film. So basically, so literally actually right as Danvers is telling Mrs. Noir to go jump, there's a shipwreck right in the bay of Manderley And it's revealed that that's where Rebecca's boat, which we thought she had drowned, but she she didn't. She was actually in this boat of hers and it was scuttled, meaning that there were holes in it. So now it brings up this whole question of like what really happened. And Maxime and Mrs. DeWinter have this whole conversation in like this boathouse. And he basically explains like what happened. So he says that, you know, how he always hated Rebecca which was like kind of a really big reveal because the whole time J- John Fontaine's character is like, I think that you really don't like me. I think you just want Rebecca back. But he's like, no, I never liked her at all. Yeah, I hated her. And then it goes into more about who Rebecca was, how he was told that and what what's the line that she had, the the brains, the beauty and, and the breeding. Oh, I fucking hate that so much. Yeah, it was, it was a very cringy line. But he was basically, you can say that he was given like a bill of goods or sold a bill of goods, but it wasn't at all. And so he comes to find out from Rebecca that that's something that there's some secret that they don't explicitly say. And I wrote down possible theories to what it was, and it could be her bisexual, bisexuality, that she wasn't a virgin, that she re- just doesn't love him, that she's just using him for money. So like, what was that secret? And so basically she tells Maxine the secret four days into their honeymoon and basically makes this deal that like, yeah, I'm just going to be unfaithful and I'm just going to pretend to be your loving wife and pretend to be this Mrs. DeWinter character in order to just keep up appearances. And because he, cause she knows that a guy like Maxime is not going to divorce her to ruin the family honor and she keeps on goading him and goading him. And so well, actually, let's pause for a second. So what do you think the secret was? Like, what is this big secret that Maxime is like horrified to learn about with Rebecca that he like, Hated her forever because of it, but yet he was still willing to be married to her because he didn't want to divorce her.
0: Personally, I think it's that she's a lesbian and that, like, her and well, she's
1: bisexual because she has relationships still with men. Like, she there are multiple men in the movie that point out they had a relationship with her, or at least they at least Fable we know, and then that Frank character who's like ahead of Manderly they say that she right. kind of got to him, but. But they kind of allude that she didn't yeah, fully it's get like, to him.
0: Yeah, it's not like outright specifically stated. Probably because the MPA they couldn't like maybe yeah. push that line too much or of, of exactly what it is. But yeah, I just always assume that it was. I mean, from my one watch of the movie, that it was Mrs. Danvers. And they were like truly in love, and that's really the main reason why she, she stuck around and why she's like still in the mansion, and and it's kind of what has tortured. Lawrence olivier's character um and this film is really like a mystery box so it's you kind of keep questioning every character's motives except for our narrator because you know like we're in her shoes so she's kind of like innocent in this whole thing so it really definitely like adds to the tension throughout even for him who you like is he a nice guy like what are his true intentions like what is really happening so that is a really great like reveal and twist What, what did you think was that that big kept secret
1: yeah I I think it was the bisexuality but I think it was told in like a different way I think that's why I think that's why I added in the the not being a virgin part too that I think that she just kind of said to him like I've been promiscuous I've been you know I've explored my sexuality and and it seems like Maxime's character had been he's very sheltered because he says that he had only grown up on Manderly and he's only been used to that life so you can imagine you probably had this little kid grow up in a very sheltered life being constantly served and not really understanding how to be free but then you also it just adds a lot of questions but I think it's a very interesting mystery that it's never really revealed like what it is but I think probably the most obvious implication is that she says to him yeah I'm bisexual I've slept with women and I've slept with men too and you aren't the first one and this isn't some holy marriage and matrimony so which is probably for 1940 again. That's a, it's a horror. huge deal. That's a yeah. horror. You know, that's yeah, it's a big deal, and that they're trying to play up to. So the scene continues, <laughs> uh, coming back to where Maxime is telling Mrs. De Winter Fontaine's character what happened that night, and so then he says to her that Rebecca basically started talking about like, what if I was pregnant, and what if the child I had wasn't yours, and what how would you feel if that child then took over Mandoline? You had to die knowing that there was an a non De pretending to be a DeWinter, Winter, running Manderly, and she basically tries to get him to kill her. Like, he's really, like, she really is trying to build up that tension. And then I think he does, uh, he says that he struck her, but I think that was probably more of like a slap, you know, but then it sounds like she then charged at him. He got out of the way, and then she fell, and she struck her head on what they say is a shift tackle, and I think it's like just a little anchor. Yeah. Um. And then she's dead. And so, and and that's a difference from the book, and that was a big point of contention from the NPA, NPA, that they couldn't show, because in the book, Maxime actually kills her, he shoots her, they couldn't show murder and then someone just getting away with it, that was like one of the clauses in how they couldn't do this back then in the production codes, Um, so they basically changed it up so that he doesn't actually kill her, but he's at least there to witness that she had died by an accident. And so then he says that he took her body, puts it in the boat, sinks it, and then misidentifies another body that they thought was Rebecca's, and that body is buried with all the other De and the new and the body they just discovered is actually Rebecca. So it's like a 15-minute scene. It's a pretty lengthy monologue, and it kind of turns the events of the film. It, it gives Fontaine's character the sense of relief, like, oh, the man I'm in love with, he's actually in love with me, he actually likes me for who I am, even though we still don't really know her identity. But now it becomes this kind of court case thriller where we have to prove that Maxime had nothing to do with it, that they wanted to make it seem like that it was a suicide.
0: This is actually kind of where the movie falls for me, honestly. I think that difference in the book is drastic. Like it's so drastic that I think it just makes the film way less interesting. The fact that he isn't actually or he is in love with her and like. It just, I think, makes him kind of a boring character. Like, if he really killed her, then it's like, she's like, oh, fuck. Like, everything I know is, like, truly a lie. It makes it way more intense, way more dramatic. And then you get this, like, whole, her whole life is a lie. Like, she just has to, like, really just break down and accept it. And I think that's way more interesting than what happens in this movie. And I really just did not care about the court case at all. And that's really all my issues. This movie just comes down to like the script level. Cause I think the direction Hitchcock, the performances, the cinematography, like even the music, which we haven't even talked about too much is like all so well done. But the story is like so frustrating to me. Cause I could like see where it could be better. And I wonder, I like tried to figure this out. Like if Hitchcock really tried to advocate for that to be the case with Maxim actually killing Rebecca and, and that adds like such a, a big jump and drastic difference. I wonder if he kind of vouched for that and I, they shot him down or what actually happened. I think
1: I read somewhere that they did try hard to keep that in there. It changes the movie it, so much. It like, does, yeah, it does, because it, yeah, because then he becomes a killer and he's the dark one, and it's, uh, then it's like
0: whether she accepts him for who he is or yeah. she's just like, well, no, you're a murderer, in no fucking way.
1: Yeah, but you can look at it that he's a murderer in the sense that maybe he invoked her by slapping her first and then she came after him yeah they like try to kind of hint yeah it, but but and in, in any case though fontaine's character is like oh okay i'm in love with you still <laughs> like this is totally fine and and maybe and i think still even the act of taking someone's body and then drowning it and that's pretty hard,
0: disturbing but like the yeah. film doesn't
1: even want to like kind of dive into it at yeah at all well, it doesn't because it it can't it probably. It yeah, can't it can't really because they're not allowed to. But that also is like to Hitchcock's advantage because then he gets to create this suspenseful character and this imperfect character. Because yeah, you're trying to wonder like what's up with Maxine the whole time. You're kind of you know he says like I fly off the handle sometimes. So there's like a lot to him that's not really revealed, um, which is the kind of the case with a lot of the characters. And you have to do a lot of like deep diving into it. But then at the same time, it's like. Oh, but he is this darker person and he but he does have some levity to him. And there's just there there's a lot. There's there's a lot of conflicting ideas that is happening with his character specifically. And I understand that like it, the total like tonal change between like this like really creepy film, and you don't really know what's going to happen to like this court case drama is a little drastic, but yet I was still entertained by it because I really thought because, again, that's another suspenseful thing because the suspense in that, if you think about the quote that we read at the beginning and how Hitchcock builds up to it, is that we as the audience know that, uh, that Fable has this like big secret and that we know that it's probably not true at all and that we know that what really happened, but not everyone else really knows what happened between R- Rebecca and Maxime. Um, so the film progresses and it's this big court case and then we come to find out through fable trying to essentially blackmail maxine being like well i know rebecca wasn't suicidal because he feels like he was probably the closest to her even though he probably wasn't because danvers was probably the closest to her really and uh so he tries to be like no she wasn't suicidal and she was pregnant because she went to this doctor and so it's like this whole thing of like well what's true what's not true so then this like head detective of the whole case goes to this doctor that Rebecca had went to and the doctor reveals that Rebecca uh, was sick and had cancer. And so you then realize that Rebecca was goading Maxine because she knew she was going to die. And so that, and so that she just wanted to die really in general because she didn't want to live through this disease, which is heartbreaking itself. But so then basically the idea of that suicide, that Rebecca killed herself becomes the ultimate accepted idea by everyone. And that, and then the cases just kind of dropped. And, um, I, and this is, yeah, it's a little bit different than the rest of the film. But again, like it adds more suspense because you don't know what's going to happen. You kind of are like, they're not going to get away with this. That Maxime is going to get arrested and that Fontaine's going to have to watch all that happen. And it's that's pretty suspenseful. And uh, we actually get our Hitchcock uh, cameo uh, when Fable is he's on a payphone. And you see Hitchcock outside. Um, Do you
0: walk by? I actually missed it. I yeah, don't it's really it's
1: really quick, uh, and it's a young Hitchcock too, so it's not like the typical old man that we're used to. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little bit different. But yeah, he is there in that scene. And then, and then the film, and then this is towards the end of the film, and the film ends with Danvers burning the whole house of Manderley up, and she, and uh, Fontaine's character is sleeping in the room that that Danvers lights up at first, so. It's pretty intense. We don't get really much of it except for when we see Danvers in Rebecca's room as the ceiling collapses on her. So, you know, Danvers dies. This whole house gets destroyed because Danvers is like, essentially, you killed the one thing that I love. And so I'm going to destroy this whole home. And um, the film ends with the burning embroidered R on the pillowcase, uh, kind of similar to what happens in Citizen Kane with Rosebud. An R name thing that gets burned. That's symbolic. And the film ends on this pretty intense note of just that like Manderley is burned up because it was like a lover's passion, essentially.
0: I found that really interesting. I mean, it's a great kind of conclusion to Mrs. Danvers kind of going down in this blaze of glory and and kind of being burnt up to a crisp with Manderley not wanting to leave, kind of being with Rebecca one last time. And I think that's a good kind of moment to talk about. The remake of this film, which we haven't really even mentioned, in, in 2020, Netflix uh, released a remake of Rebecca, shot in color. And I haven't seen it yet. I don't think you've seen it, Ben, but I've I have seen you some know scenes. you've seen some scenes and yeah. you know what the ending is and how it how it's different from uh, the Hitchcock version.
1: Yeah, like so she so Danvers runs away instead of being collapsed inside the building, she runs away. And then Fontaine, what is supposed to be Fontaine's character, I think it's played by Lily James in the movie. Runs after her, and is like, you don't have to run away, you don't have to do this, and Danvers explicitly, explicitly says, you took away the one thing that I truly loved, meaning Rebecca, which completely reveals the whole lesbian undertones that Hitchcock had to avoid explicitly saying, which made it way better in the 1940 version which is
0: makes it way more melodramatic
1: and like yeah
0: not as subtle yeah definitely
1: yeah so and the remake i've seen some other scenes like the scene when uh rebecca and uh, mrs de winter comes down with wearing the dress that rebecca had wore the year before and the way that army hammer plays it is just not as subtle and not as horrified it's more just like he's just angry he's just angry yeah. He's he's more just angry about it so I I really don't need to talk much more about that version because they they fucked up. And honestly... I, you know, there are some things I guess that we can remake. There are some old movies, but don't touch a fucking Hitchcock film ever. <laughs> don't just don't touch it.
0: it. Yeah, I wanted to bring it up because of the end with her jumping into the water. I think it's it's actually I think an interesting idea because she's like reuniting with Rebecca. She's like going back to where she died. You know, trying to like become one with Rebecca in the same way that I think when Manderley kind of burning up, she's like this is her one true love, like the the house and Rebecca and sharing this with her. So I like kind of get that ideology of, of wanting to do that and. I think this film is like perfect of showing what could be the small differences of films from a novel to a film and how that can really like drastically change characters, drastically change stories. And also with the remake being Sean Color, I think, well, I mean, this is without me seeing it, but I think it probably really glamorizes Manderly. And in a way that this film, it doesn't glamorize Manderly, it doesn't glamorize being rich or wealthy. It it, it becomes a weight. It's like a, this like struggle of, Having all these things and, and what does it really add to your life? The, the darkness that the black and white gives you and how ominous the overall feeling of Manderley feels. I, there's no way they accurately represent that. Yeah,
1: there's also CGI Manderley which is like a miniature miniature Manderley. drastically yeah, changes when, your feeling. It, yeah, when you can, when something is physical and, and it's there, it, it's much better on on film. And uh, so I think kind of maybe to wrap up this whole discussion on Rebecca, there's a lot more to be said about it, but. And again, that kind of buys into the idea that this film, like a novel, needs multiple read throughs, watch throughs, interpretations, because there's a ton in there to take out of it. But the biggest thing that I really like, and I really like this motif, and I don't know if you picked up on it, and we sort of have glossed by it, but it's the idea of water and the sea. So I really like the idea of there's a lot of movies and maybe more music that i really enjoy that uses the sea as like this motif and you know you can think it to be very ethereal and hippie like it's always flowing and moving man type of thing like it's very it's i i like the water i like the idea that it's ever flowing that it's ever going on the the story keeps on going that there is constant motion and movement and in places that this water has been so Just that whole idea of water is a really cool motif and a really cool theme and idea to put behind it. And this movie mentions the sea a ton. There's a lot of water things. Um, The first thing that I that I wanted to talk about was when that whole Mrs. Van Hopper scene when she says to her, "How did you manage it? Still waters certainly run deep." So you have immediately Fontaine's character being talked about how she's a still water. There's a lot to her character. There's a lot to her. And then you talk about her identity; it's ever flowing, it's ever moving on. Uh, you know, we, we, we didn't talk about much about Fontaine, but her whole character is like this nervous wreck, you know, constantly, you know, having to figure out her identity, having to find where she fits in, much like how water has to constantly move and find that place where it can keep going down and and where gravity can pull it. So, so she's like water in it herself. Then you get into Manderley, the first night they're there it's raining there's water being flushed away being washed over the entire uh, landscape of Mandalay. there's this new era Uh, then you find out that the where they're staying in the east wing has no view of the sea and the west wing is where the preferred place is because you can see the sea you're a part of the sea we've talked about with lighting how the lighting manipulates how it can hit everything in the in the shot and how it brings these different tones into it and specifically, it makes it seem like you can be underwater at times, like you're watching things in a fish tank. That there's just this constant, you know, voyeuristic light being put into it. Much how, like, when light hits water, it disperses, and there's so many different things that can be seen and refracted out of it. Things are, you know, distorted, which is again a suspenseful thing. You don't—it's horrific. You don't know what's going to happen in that distortion. Uh, you know, you have Danvers saying to her, "Listen to the sea. Just listen to the sea." Rebecca dies in the sea. Rebecca is found in the sea. They live right by the sea. So there's just like all these like water motifs we talk about with Danvers and how she glides across the floor. She's ever moving through it. And uh, she even says that the only thing that could take down Rebecca was couldn't be a man or a woman. It could only be the sea that took her down. So I, I, I've been talking about this for a few minutes now. Like, what do you think about water and, and the sea being the specific thing that is constantly used throughout the film? Water is very like cyclical. when I think of it It's it's like a repeating
0: Constant cycle we, we always think about it Whether it rains Water falls to the ground It's absorbed Or it runs in a river And then it's evaporated back up to, Into the clouds again For it to continue to rain Like it builds this Kind of ever going cycle Of In this case In this film Love, death And just truly Kind of figuring out like, This cycle and, and what it means To these characters And how it's used As really kind of like a haunting imagery knowing that that's where rebecca died and kind of like constantly being reminded about that and her body probably decomposing we never see these details in the film but it just makes you kind of think more and more and more about it and like you said with the opening scene of them getting to manderley and it's raining that was an addition that hitchcock added that i think adds a lot not just to that scene because she gets into the house. Of Manderley with all the staff and it's really intimidating but she's cold she's wet she's just completely out of her element and it's just kind of constantly torturing her throughout this film and when then we get to uh, obviously Miss Danvers and the sea kind of beckoning to her but yeah I could totally see that it's it's. I just keep thinking of how cyclical it is and how like life you know, eventually die you kind of go back into the ground or sometimes you're buried at sea which is a very common uh, occurrence
1: and obviously we have uh, Rebecca who didn't really have a choice she died at sea yeah she didn't, yeah she didn't have a choice she died on a on a ship tackle um there I'm trying to think of like other like sea like motifs like she's at the cliffside at the beginning of the movie uh he's at the cliffside and you don't know if he's going to jump into the water and that's yeah. also the place where Rebecca In the very beginning yeah yeah where Rebecca revealed her her big secret which was by the sea so it's there's like a beautiful shot, too, where
0: they're dancing and it's like filmed in a puddle. Right. And then yes. It goes up to them dancing. Yeah.
1: Yes. There's that. There's incredible
0: book like mirrors from water almost yeah. like kind of making a ref- Fontaine think of Rebecca by looking at her own image, essentially.
1: Yeah. and There's even um, I pulled this line uh, today before we started. Um, I'm not going to there's too much I wrote down. But anyway, so basically it was a scene between uh, Fontaine and Olivier at the way beginning when they're first starting to get to know each other. And Fontaine's character starts talking about, because they're standing right by the ocean, she's not talking about how, how she likes to swim, but that she's kind of afraid because she knew someone that had drowned in it. And that takes Maxine kind of back for a second because he knows someone who drowned in it. So it's just like the the subtleness, the way that water is brought into the film is really interesting. And what it exactly means, You know, I think it, it does mean that ever-flowingness, but I think there maybe is a cynical kind of aspect to it. But yeah, so I think that it kind of really wraps up the Main discussion on Rebecca. Again, there's so much more that we could talk about for forever. And obviously, let us know what you think of this film. You can email us at worthy submissions at gmail.com. You can follow us on our Instagram and and Twitter pages at worthypod. And let us know what you think. There's so much to talk about, and we love the discussion of it. And we even get to talk about the best character of the film, and that was. uh, brahmi ben the kind of creepy little housekeeper guy oh oh yeah (laughs) yeah and uh it's more just because i share a name with him and i just love that so that's rebecca
0: The 13th Academy Awards were held on February 27, 1941, in the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. It was hosted by Bob Hope, and the award for Best Screenplay was split into two separate categories this time, with Best Original Screenplay and Best Screenplay. This was also the first year that sealed envelopes were used to keep secret names of the winners, which led to the iconic, famous phrase, May I have the envelope, please? The accounting firm of Price Waterhouse was hired to count the ballots after the fiasco of leaked voting results from last year in 1939 by the Los Angeles Times. So one thing I do want to note, February 27th is my birthday. <laughs> That's the only edition I have there.
1: Academy Honorary Awards went to Bob Hope in recognition of his unselfish services to the motion picture industry and Colonel Nathan Levinson for his outstanding service to the industry and the army during the past 9 years uh which had made possible the present efficient mobilization of the motion picture industry facilities for the production of army training films. Uh so obviously I guess this is uh the build up to World War II so maybe that was a we'll give it to the troops kind of honorary award. Um, But, yeah, very important, you know, those army films, how they were to, I guess, people getting used to (laughs) World War II and seeing it on screen. But, yeah, some interesting uh, honorary awards that year.
0: Best special effects goes to The Thief of Baghdad. Photograph effects by Lawrence W. Butler and sound effects by Jack Whitney. Lawrence Butler is credited with the creation of using blue screens based on his proper use of practice in The Thief of Baghdad.
1: This was his only win out of four nominations Rebecca was uh, nominated in this category as well why Rebecca didn't win this I don't know I guess maybe the thief of Baghdad had some very good special effects but that's one loss out of the 11 nominations that Rebecca had received
0: yeah we have Jack Cosgrove who did win the previous year for Gone with the Wind right so right yeah sounds like yeah that could be it yeah
1: that could be it but moving on to best film editing which went to Northwest Mounted Police to Ann Botions Ann Botions was uh, Cecile B. DeMille's longtime editor for over 40 years. Uh, This was her only win out of three nominations, the others being The Greatest Show on Earth and The Ten Commandments, and she was the first woman to win the Best Editing category, Uh, so which is remarkable and and really great, and I'm very happy that happened, but Rebecca was also in this category for Halsey Kern, and they did not win that as well. So was this a oh it's a Demille film for Northwest Mounted Police they are going to give this to maybe um but i thought the editing of rebecca was again like there's no technical flaws with rebecca really there at least to me so it's interesting that it just kind of gets snubbed for best film editing right there yeah the
0: editing's phenomenal i mean it's what helps establish that point of view the tension of of kind of building up uh, how Fontaine or a narrator is just getting more and more uncomfortable throughout the film. It's all really done thanks to the amazing cinematography, of course, but also how the editing kind of constructs that all together to add to that uh, drama and that tension. So, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. This may be, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, if you know, is this this may be the first time a female's won in like a a completely open category, which is not split, you know, by gender. Like a technical
1: car- category? Yeah. I f-
0: think i think it might be unless there was a costume or anything else that we missed i don't think there was yeah there,
1: there might have been a costume yeah maybe de- i'm
0: forgetting part- that but or an art department one that i'm just not remembering no matter if it is or isn't it's it's pretty significant that we have a woman winning here
1: yeah and it's not like many women are winning for film editing today in general. Either, so, yeah uh yeah so it's, it's very remarkable and really it's really cool best cinematography color goes to the thief of baghdad
0: goes to george perineau He is a French cinematographer and has one win out of his two nominations.
1: Yeah, so again, that kind of split between cinematography going color and black and white. There are a lot more black and white films that were nominated that year, but Thief of Baghdad, again, winning another Oscar that night. But moving on to best cinematography, black and white, goes to Rebecca, to George Barnes. So... Yay, very happy, because that cinematography is great, and yeah, we didn't talk about much during the initial discussion on it, but there are some really just great shots within the film, the way it's constructed, the way the lighting is is done. I I don't know, John, you're more of a cinematographer than I am, so maybe you can have better words for it, but it it was really good, and it's really visually engaging, and one of the better-looking films, you know, we've only seen 13, but it's up there with Gone with the Wind and with All Quiet on the Western Front, I think.
0: Yeah, we were kind of discussing whether kind of where it fits on our favorite cinematography so far out of all the films, and yeah, like you said, it's definitely up there. It's it's really beautiful, and I think obviously we have some beautiful images, the way the lights use to kind of create like such dynamic images, and we obviously have the deep focus that we talked about, which is also another kind of connection to Citizen Kane and how they use that deep focus to kind of make their mansions and Manderly and Rebecca is kind of larger than life, and I think that kind of goes to it, but also, the way they use the perspective, the way the camera kind of like glides. And, and if you feel like you're behind the eyes of the main characters and it just kind of glides through rooms, it, it focuses on one character, even another character may be talking off screen. And it's it's very new and it feels fresh from what we've seen so far out of the first uh, 12 Best Picture winners.
1: Yeah, certainly. And, and one other aspect to add to that is that uh, Hitchcock and David O. Selznick didn't really... Uh, meet eye to eye on creative aspects of the film and Selznick really I, I think Selznick had final cut ultimately of the film but what Hitchcock did was he edited in camera meaning that he shot only what he wanted for the final cut yeah giving Selznick really nothing to work with and just to take what he had so the fact that they planned that out and you know George Barnes was on board with that and they were able to accomplish that is pretty cool because again it came out very beautifully I wanted to talk about that I completely forgot
0: during our main discussion but that's One is that's really hard to do because you have to have like the edit, the cut of the film kind of in your head. So that kind of shows how how just visual Hitchcock kind of understood the film medium and how exactly even building the tension in his head and editing like that's kind of like unfathomable to kind of break that down and think about that scene to scene. So that's really significant. But also for those who don't know. This is essentially, what you usually do for a film is is film in the entire scene once. You kind of get like that, that standard wide shot so you can kind of cut and fill in wherever you may need. But what Hitchcock was probably doing on this film is filming portions of that wide shot. So you couldn't just constantly cut back to it whenever you wanted. Maybe he filmed a close up, but it only had one line instead of like the two lines the main character actually reads. So he's basically pitting Selznick into a corner where he literally can't make a new movie He can't edit around the shots that they have because those are the specific shots that they made so it's really interesting it's kind of <laughs> it's very uncommon what we see nowadays is yeah. basically shooting for content and then figuring out the movie afterwards which is definitely common for some uh, directors and H- Hitchcock is known to be that kind of like narrowed eye like if coming from that, that art direction background he knows exactly what to build and especially thinking about an, an art direction background they focus on creating what you see on camera, knowing exactly where the camera is going to go left or right, up and down, whatever it may be, knowing what's not ever going to be shown is something that you like, then don't have to build. So I could totally see how that kind of goes in line. I remember hearing a funny story about Hitchcock is that, an actor was talking about him and he would they were like oh he would only sometimes build like half of a door frame because he knew that like the camera was never going to show the ground so like there was no need to build the bottom half of a door frame (laughs) because that's all you were ever going to see so i think that kind of sums hitchcock up pretty well
1: yeah certainly one of his other films was actually nominated in this category too, foreign correspondent rudolph mette uh but did not win but yeah so it's moving on best art direction color thief of baghdad vincent corda
0: The Thief of Baghdad received the most Oscars of the evening, 3 to be specific, the first time a film not nominated for Best Picture won the most awards. This and Pinocchio were the first films nominated for Best Picture to receive multiple awards. So why do you think, I mean, without having seen The Thief of Baghdad, why do you think it wasn't nominated for Best Picture and... And what does it kind of say that it won the most awards and being kind of a significant honor? Or I don't even know if you would call this an honor. It's it's intriguing why this would happen.
1: It's kind of a mystery because it's not limited to the Best Picture nominees, but clearly The Thief of Baghdad had some very cool uh, color elements to the film because it won for Best Art Direction Color, Best Cinematography Color, and then Best Special Effect, which is not a color category, but it won the other two color categories. So maybe there's something to it. I don't know, but Pinocchio winning... (laughs) Maybe Um, it was like the story or script or something that kind
0: of pulled it down.
1: Yeah, it's very odd, but um, who knows? And I guess we would just have to see to give that final judgment. But it's one of those things in Oscar history where you're like, why do you do this to us? And (laughs) well, why does this happen? But moving on to best art direction, black and white goes to Pride and Prejudice to Cedric Gibbons and Paul Gross, so again another Cedric Gibbons award. So this is the first year where the best art direction categories were split. We've seen black and white, so we have another category split where it honors only black and white and only color films. So Pride and Prejudice, this version in 1940 was the first of two film adaptations of the novel, as well as countless other TV shows and spin-offs. And for Cedric Gibbons, this was his third win out of 11 nominations and for Gross, it was his first win out of 3 nominations.
0: Best Sound Recording goes to Strike Up the Band by Douglas Shear. This is the fourth win in this category out of seven total wins across 21 nominations. Strike Up the Band starred Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, their second musical collaboration. In keeping with MGM's practice of the time, the film soundtrack was recorded in stereophonic sound, but released with conventional manorial sound. At least some of the original stereo recording has survived and been included with some home releases. Including the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland collection. So here we have another mention of the wonderful Judy Garland, as we just saw the Wizard of Oz release last year. So I thought you were going to say Douglas
1: Shear. <laughs> we do also. <laughs> I mean, four, seven total wins, but his fourth already up to 1940 out of 21 nominations. It's, it's wild. Pre- it's pretty wild. It's
0: unbelievable. Yeah, I
1: don't. I don't know why I brought Judy Garland instead, but <laughs> yes, they're both pretty great, right? Yeah, both pretty great, and uh, yeah. So another. Another one of those, like Hollywood pairs of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, although we know the atrocities that Judy Garland went through um, at this time. But uh, let's move on to some uh, fun stuff, and that's Best Original Song. And that one went to When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Music by Lee Harline and lyrics by Ned Washington. So the song has since become the essential, the representative song of the Walt Disney Company. You hear it everywhere, you know, at the beginning of every Disney movie, any Disney production. So in October of 1938, Edwards recorded the song as a test take because Edwards was cast as Jiminy Cricket. And at the time, the Cricket's role in the story was limited. When the producers decided to promote Jiminy to the narrator role, using Edwards' recording made sense as the title theme and the film Edward's performance plays only over the titles and bridges into Jiminy's opening scene. What do you think about Pinocchio? Is that one of those Disney films you like, feel fondly about? It's like the music that I remember fondly.
0: This kind of surprised me just because I didn't know this film was as old as it was. Yeah, I didn't either. I always thought this was like a 90s film, like an early 90s film before The Lion King or something like that. I don't know, it's kind of foolish on my part, but I distinctly have not many memories of this film, but a weird... Remake made? I think maybe in the '90s it was a live-action remake. where oh, like with uh, all the kids turn into donkeys and stuff. It's super weird. Is that it. the one with uh, Roberto Benigni? I don't think so. I thought that was an Italian. Maybe it is. There I is one where I the, haven't the seen it in a while. Flapped. Okay, yeah, that was pretty recent. I print. I think the one you're thinking of, Like yeah, there, in 2018 or something like there that. There was a recent one. Yeah, I think that might have been uh, what it was. Like it was like I his don't. big attempt at making a Pinocchio story. But yeah, it's like there's even. Pinocchio story is still trying to be made. I know there was a Guillermo del Toro. I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. But I don't think it's happening anymore. Yeah, it's like an interesting story that I think could kind of be continue to be adapted. But all I really remember is like the cricket and that iconic song. Best scoring goes to Tin Pan Alley by Alfred Newman. Again, he's a part of the Newman family of composers, as we discussed in the previous episode. Rebecca was nominated in the score of the film adds quite a sinister
1: quality to it. Best Original Score, and that went to Pinocchio, to Lee Harline, Paul Smith, and Ned Washington. So Pinocchio was the first animated film to take home competitive Oscars for both Best Original Score and Best Song, which is a common thing that's happened, again, like even more recently, where they win Best Song and Best Original Score. So it's pretty interesting that that Pinocchio was the first one to do this, the first animated film. But in this category, out of a countless number of films that were nominated, is Rebecca. And Rebecca, as we had said, there's a lot of sinister aspects to it. But the music is very sinister because I read at first it's very happy-go-lucky, but then it adds some like really weird organ, you know, ethereal kind of sound. So well, what do you think of the score? Because I thought it was really good in the film.
0: I like the score a lot. The theme. Th- The only kind of thing that rubbed with me is that I felt that they, this kind of was especially in the first third, maybe the first half of the film, is that it kind of felt they were, like, overly using the score, where they were, like, kind of really pushing it on the film, and, like, there was dialogue between characters, and I'm like, just stop. Like, (laughs) that's always, like, a kind of a pet peeve of mine, when they kind of, like, overuse music and, and scores, or whether it's original music or just added music, it's... It felt distracting to me at some points, honestly, even though at some points I was like, wow, this is great. The the dramatic cue when you have the freeze frame cut to the ocean, like there's a really amazing moments with this score. I just felt it was a little like heavy handed, uh, especially in the first like third of the film.
1: Yeah. I, I kind of liked it. There's actually, there's one scene where they're talking by the sea and between Maxime and Fontaine's character. And there's like some really nice big dramatic cues that they do with it. And I don't know if that's just, could you also see this as like Hitchcock kind of playing into the typical romance style and genre of the fort of the thirties and was about to be the forties. Do you think he's sort of playing around with it, making that first act for you, you know, you felt it was, it was kind of dragging a little cause it felt almost like a, just a typical Hollywood like romance story, but it's underneath, it's really not.
0: Yeah, no, I think it was definitely intentional that he was trying to like make us think it was one movie and then kind of switch it up and. And we can see that kind of relationship of him building that into his film catalog. And then you could kind of see, I feel like this is a great example. I mean, again, I've only seen like 15% of his films, but this is a great transition from this to Psycho to kind of see there's kind of similarities in the two of, you know, having a figure who's kind of off screen. That's kind of pulling all the puppet marionette <laughs> strings, yeah. essentially not to reference Pinocchio, but yeah, there's, there's some, uh, truly a puppet master Hitchcock is.
1: <laughs> Should Pinocchio have one best picture? I don't know. <laughs>
0: Best Short Subject Cartoons goes to The Milky Way by MGM. This is the first non Disney film, as we didn't scream another one as we normally do.
1: Yeah, I didn't have to this time.
0: Fred Quimby was one of the producers of the short film, and he would go on to produce the Tom and Jerry series as well as Puss Gets the Boot which was also produced by Quimby and the Tom and Jerry series would go on to win seven Oscars in this category.
1: Yeah. So Puss Gets the Boot was nominated also that year with Milky Way. But uh, yeah, let's go Fred Quimby. And let's go Tom and Jerry. I'm a huge Tom and Jerry fan. so like, <laughs> I also
0: did not know Tom and Jerry was this old. So that's pretty crazy.
1: I knew, I thought it was more like the fifties that it was from, yeah. but I'm very happy that it was some that was part of an Oscar that actually it's crazy it, to think about that, that it right? Won, it won seven <laughs> Oscars. <laughs> yeah. it, it, not only, this is it won seven Oscars. It's pretty remarkable. I love. I mean, the new movie. I know people. Yeah, of, can it, we talk it, about that for a second? <laughs> God. Yeah, sure.
0: it's twenty twenty one. So the new HBO Max slash Warner Media Tom and Jerry just came out, which is like cross half live action, half animated three D, two D anime. It's so fucking bad. Just don't watch oh, it. No, it is I,
1: awful. I. I'll say this. Anything with Tom and Jerry in it, I'm so for 100% great. Anything with the people in the movie sucked. Okay, I can agree <laughs> with that. I can agree with but that. But all the time. I Don't watch it, though. <laughs> I love Tom and Jerry. You could easily rope me into a stranger's van with Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Best live action short subject, too real, went to Teddy the Rough Rider from Warner Brothers. So this film is based on Teddy Roosevelt. starring Sidney Blackmere who is probably most well known for which you haven't seen this film as roman castavetti in rosemary's baby but blackmere also portrayed roosevelt six times in his career which i don't know i it was hard to figure out if it was part of this like film series or not but the fact that he looked like teddy roosevelt enough to play him seven total times in his career is pretty pretty cool and kind of unique
0: yeah, it is unique, and on one hand, it's probably like, God damn it, like, really, you're casting <laughs> yeah. me as Teddy again? But I mean, that's that's significant. You're playing playing such an iconic figure in American history now, so that's that's pretty admirable, I would say.
1: Yeah, 100. percent So good on you, Sydney Blackmere.
0: Best live action short subject one reel goes to Quicker in a Wink by Pete Smith and MGM. The film is about stroboscopic photography, which is essentially capturing an object in movement and seeing the path that it took during that movement. This was part of the Pete Smith short film series and was his second and final win. And for just a little more kind of a clear picture of what stroboscopic photography is, imagine like a a long exposure of a photo and you're maybe waving your arms around and you see every point that your arm made throughout that wave and you see it all individually kind of compressed into one image so it looks almost like the image is in fact moving or it's kind of took a long period of time it's it's funny looking back at it now as this being like an example of showing off this this way of photography that was probably (laughs) very unique and and amazing and now you can just open up instagram or snapchat and it's probably like a filter that you just press a button and it does it instantly photoshop or something yeah
1: yeah, it's really cool, and it, it adds to that mechanical aspect of filmmaking that, that is lost for a lot of people, but not to me and John. We love film and physically touching it and using cameras that require you to actually know like what to do with each lever instead of just click, hitting a button. Best original story went to Arise, My Love by Benjamin Glazer and John S. Toldy. Hey, Ben and John, look at us. <laughs> what are the chances of that? Um, did not even realize that until just now so the screenplay itself was not nominated for best screenplay even though it won for best original story and i've talked about how weird and messed up that hole is and how we just it's hard for people to look back and understand that but it was co-written by billy wilder and the film starred claudette colbert and Ray milan and supposedly colbert said that this was her favorite production that she worked on and we talked about with an with It Happened One Night, how she did not like working on that movie. There were a lot of uh, just they no one really wanted to be on that film, but even though it was so great and but she really liked Arise My Love.
0: Best screenplay goes to The Philadelphia Story by Donald Ogden Stewart, based on the play by Philip Barry. Now, Ben, have you seen the Philadelphia story or do you have any opinions on it?
1: Yes, I have seen the Philadelphia story. Um, and I think it's one of those movies again where I think I should probably rewatch it cause I didn't really enjoy it that much. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Really? I just thought it was, I think it was, it was like the greatest thing I've ever seen. So I guess you really like it, but I love this movie. Like <laughs> why? I, I, well, one, it's
0: just like that, uh, beautiful romantic screwball comedy. And I think it, uh, it's directed by George Kukor, which we've talked about as well yeah. as being a kind of a constant, uh, Uh, Director and name that we hear in the Academy Awards. It obviously stars Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, and James Stewart. So it's like this amazing cast. It's based on like a Broadway play. So it's very similar to You Can't Take It With You. I think it's better than You Can't Take It With You simply because I love the love story and it's like this really amazing film that I feel like kind of really helped to find the love triangle in in film and and especially like rom-coms.
1: It's like a love square in that movie. I think think that's what I didn't like about it was, was that there was so much too much love well, well the ending is that well who do i marry now james stewart's like oh i'll do it no no i don't want to do it with you and then carrie grant who was there the whole time was just like i'll do it and then <laughs> i so again i think i need to rewatch it maybe i i don't know maybe it was just that day i just didn't really mm-hmm. enjoy it but um yeah i'm not saying it's a bad movie it certainly was a lot of fun to watch but it wasn't one of my favorite movies i've seen
0: sure i mean it's really it's that fast witty Kind of uh, it can happen or it happened one night and you can't take it with you. It's like very in that same vein. So if you like those and you've been listening long, definitely check out the
1: Philadelphia story. And the other thing, though, with uh, best screenplay, John, is that Rebecca was nominated in this and did not win. And yeah, Philadelphia story. Great, fun time and very fast paced dialogue and great characters and blah, 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 blah. But fucking just give Rebecca more. 11 nominations. It's only won once so See, far I, throughout the night.
0: I love the screenplay of uh, the Philadelphia story, so I can't really agree with you there. Plus, I think that's my biggest issue with Rebecca, honestly, is in the screenplay. So, I, I, uh, yeah, I think it's worthy of being nominated just because I think it is pretty impressive of how it adapts this kind of first-person story into – uh, this kind of psychological thriller, but those are where the kind of aspects of the film lets me down.
1: Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get what you're saying. doesn't let me down. <laughs> but moving on to best original screenplay goes to The Great McGinty by Preston Sturges. Uh, so Sturges supposedly sold the screenplay to Paramount for only $10 to have the rights to direct the film. It's a political satire starring Brian Dunleavy and Akeem Tamarov. Uh, Sturges won only once out of three nominations. And John, you're going to love this. He was a co-writer on The Invisible Man. Hell yeah. <laughs>
0: Actually, I don't like The Invisible Man that much. Not the original.
1: <laughs> you only like the new one. <laughs>
0: uh, the new one is, is great. I haven't seen any of like, the old sequels. But um, out of the monster movies, now that I've seen, I think, everyone. I don't think I haven't seen um, the the '50s one, the uh, monster in the was it the the creature uh, in the black Blue. creature in the black lagoon. Thank you. That's the only one I haven't seen, and I think the Invisible Man is probably like my least favorite of the like core original
1: monster movies. Gotcha. There is a lot of I'm looking at the names of all the people who were nominated for the writing categories this year. There's a lot of standout people. So for people who didn't win, there's Ben Hecht. John Huston was there. Um, Charlie Chaplin for The Great Dictator. You had Dalton Trumbo also there. So there's a lot of like really big names of writers all nominated this year, but none of them winning, which happens, I guess.
0: Best Supporting Actress goes to Jane Darwell for The Grapes of Wrath as Ma Jode. Darwell's only win in this category, but her career would go on to span over 100 films, including her final role as the Bird Woman in Mary Poppins. This is the only other win for The Grapes of Wrath other than the Best Director.
1: Grapes of Wrath, I kind of want to hold off talking about that because we're going to be talking about John Ford in our next episode of Worthy. So instead, let's focus on Judith Anderson playing Rebecca, playing Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca. She was great in this film and one of those very haunting performances. So I really, again, that kind of gives me high expectations for uh, Jane Darwell in The Grapes of Wrath, which I've, I just, you know, will hold off that discussion for a way later time. But anyways, but uh, yeah, so I would have picked her. I mean, I think Judith Anderson. It was so creepy. It was so creepy of everything she did. She yeah, she's a phenomenal
0: performance where she like feels un unhuman throughout it. Honestly, like, yeah. where she feels very ghostly and it fits the tone and it fits the the story so well. And she stands out as just truly being one of the the scariest I think performances we've seen yet, definitely in, in Best Picture winners but we're starting to see like a trend where you know it has 11 nominations it's not rebecca's not really winning many and it's starting to make me question i don't know if you want to wait to talk about this but do you think it it has to do with the way this kind of story is kind of fluid in the way it wants to be like a thriller genre while it seems like it's a romantic comedy. it's kind of pushing boundaries of defining what horror is and what horror kind of becomes in the future. do you think it's just kind of like too early for people to understand this film
1: i I think that's a really hard question just for someone like me to answer that because I don't you know you don't know every oh, no. person yeah. who who voted that year. you don't understand you don't fully understand the whole context of everything, but I don't I, I wouldn't say it's because of the film itself I I really do think that these early Oscar ceremonies is more political based than actual merit based. I, I really do believe that and I, and I think that kind of stays constant So there's a lot of questionable things about with Hitchcock and the Oscars and I think that I just think that Hitchcock is just not getting his due and the, and people are kind of avoiding it even though it does ultimately win best picture but we will talk about that in just a few moments but i think it's a really hard thing to to pin that on but again like that shouldn't fall then on judith anderson not winning because she was really good like it's her performance it's her role so it's it's kind of a shame because those two scenes that we spent time to talk about were so yeah so engaging and so good and and it's really because of her so she's a standout for the film for sure yeah she's certainly a standout but let's move on to best supporting actor and another familiar name is Walter Brennan for *The Westerner* as Judge Roy Bean. So this is the third and final win for Walter Brennan in the Best Supporting Actor category. He had won three out of the last six years of the Oscars at this time, which is remarkable. And I don't think really any performer will ever do that ever again. So he has the most Best Supporting Actor awards ever. He became the making him the first performer to win three Academy Awards for acting. Uh, And again, he won in 1936 for Come and Get It, in 1938 for Kentucky, and then in 1940 for The Westerner. Uh, The Westerner was also a William Wyler film that co-starred Gary Cooper and Doris Davenport. Yeah, I think we can just really just say, like, good for you, Walter Brennan, for being able to capture this. And again, I think that plays more into that political idea of, like, how does this guy always win when he seems to be playing... In these western, it's like always a Western film that he's playing for. It's kind of this like older guy, like um, character. I don't know. It's really hard to kind of like judge and like pinpoint. But uh, it certainly seems fishy after a certain point if you're winning three out of six years. Best Actress
0: goes to Ginger Rogers as Kitty Foyle. This was Rogers' only win in nomination in this category. And she is, of course, most famous and known for her, her collaborations with Fred Astaire. So we also have Catherine Catherine Hepburn, which we've talked about in the Philadelphia story a a tiny bit. But, of course, speaking of Rebecca and the second Mr. Winner, the narrator.
1: Junior. Junior, Junior, (laughs) yes, as you would like
0: to call her, you freak. Joan Fontaine. So, one, do you think she deserves to be here? Is she maybe worthy of winning? We obviously haven't seen the, the Ginger Rogers performance in Kitty Foyle, but what do you think?
1: Oh, I think she's certainly deserving to be there. I think that she gives an, a really strong performance. Again, I talked about earlier how like she's really good with her motives and one of the things that upon researching this movie is that Hitchcock explicitly would tell her that people on the set do not like you, that he he would mentally fuck with her to get more out of the character. So when you're watching the movie, you see Joan Fontaine, a nervous wreck the entire time. You completely believe it because you believe his character is like, what the fuck's going on? Who, Who's Danvers? Who, who's Rebecca? How am I supposed to fit in? Like my identity is this and that. I don't even have a name for Christ's sake. So it's like really compelling and, and, and adds to that darkness of the film. So she gives a, a really great performance um, to the film. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you, though, are you a Joan or an Olivia fan?
0: Well, only, having only seen one of each other performances, I think I'd have to go with Joan, at least at this point, you know, let's give it some time. Maybe we see a couple of the pictures down the road with both of them or we can kind of get a better comparison. But I, I just like love her performance in this film. And I think when you have Mrs. Danvers kind of being that like foil, that opposing force and how just drastically different they are, they, they both kind of bring each other up with Fontaine having these like kind of nervous wandering eyes. She's like, doesn't know where to look oh, all the yeah. time. And, and it kind of like is the opposite of Miss Danvers who just stares and her eyes never blink. It feels unhuman, And Fontaine really kind of like sinks in while expressing heavily, but still kind of being reserved enough that the characters can kind of like sink in and we can kind of like be there with her and, and almost like feel that we're there uh,
1: walking with her through Manderley yeah 100 percent. and um yeah she's just really great in this film very very believable and, and just the nervousness the energy that she brings to it is really really cool and uh, I've, i very much enjoyed her performance and i probably would have picked her to win this year moving on to best actor and that one went to our jimmy boy james stewart for the philadelphia story as macaulay mike connor uh, we talked a lot about james stewart in the previous episode um, this, so this was his only Oscar win out of five nominations, although he did win an Honorary Lifetime Achievement Award in 1985. Uh, I thought James Stewart should have won the year before for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Even the Philadelphia story, he well, I guess maybe he is more the lead male in that character, but he does take some supporting role in it as well. So that's, again, one of those like actor, supporting actor, differentiation uh, questions. But um, he's, he's great. We love James Stewart. I, I have nothing wrong to say about him uh but let's talk about lawrence livier i guess maybe you wouldn't have picked him to win this i don't think maybe i don't know i don't know i probably would have depended on how i felt you know with at that time uh with all the other nominees Mm -hmm. because it's a really strong year you had charlie chaplin the great dictator you had henry fonda and the grapes of wrath but lawrence livier gave a really great performance i still think um as maxine de winter and rebecca just very subtle but very again like as that sinister quality because you don't know who the guy is
0: yeah you have obviously someone playing abraham lincoln so you have this iconic biopic that you kind of like can point to which is we know bread and butter for the academy and then we have charlie chapman james stewart henry fonda who is the father to actually jane fonda fun little fact who's in the the grapes of wrath and peter and peter of course (laughs) yes i only think of jane though yeah that's true um, but yeah, and then the shout out to Charlie Chapman. I mean, this is his first, I think, uh, talking picture since he kind of refused to kind of go and follow the trend that Hollywood was in. And he really stuck to his, his physical comedy and, and without using or relying on dialogue, but this really broke the mold for him. And I think really, if we were to go back and, and base history, I think Charlie Chaplin kind of deserves this award simply for not only being like The man behind everything behind the Great Dictator, but I think the Great Dictator has been very influential, not only just to like film and film history, but also to the world. I mean, he was essentially goofing and poking fun at Hitler at the time, as we're seeing a rise up into World War Two at this point, which we haven't really talked about this being 1940. We're on like the verge of war in the U.S., And Charlie Chapman is just so iconic, and he's so iconic in this role, and we've even had references to The Great Dictator in 2020 or 2019 when Trump was our president. So it's it's a film that's really never escaped uh, the American consciousness, I'll say, and I I think it totally deserves its due. Charlie Chaplin obviously won uh, an honorary award, but I wanted to specifically talk about Charlie Chaplin just because he's hilarious in, in The Great Dictator, and it's also a very powerful political film that uh, is still very topical best director goes to john ford for the grapes of wrath this is the second of four best director awards which includes the informer from 1935 next year's how green was my valley and the quiet man from 1952 now we won't talk too much about john ford because our next episode spoiler will be about how green was my valley from 1941 so you'll get plenty of ford content there
1: one of the losers, unfortunately, for this category was Alfred Hitchcock. And I think maybe you can start to pick up on that Rebecca was not getting that many wins that night. And Hitchcock never personally won an Academy Award himself, which I actually told people that a few days ago, because uh, I was telling them about the podcast and telling them we were about to record Rebecca and Hitchcock, and I said, like, this is the only one that ever won Best Picture and how we never and they were just shocked. To hear that because you would assume oh Hitchcock he probably has like five Oscars to his name you would think that this great all-time director would have this prestigious award or suppose it's a prestigious award attached to him but he never won his films won some but he never personally did himself and actually it's only a handful of his films that I can just read right now so Rebecca obviously won best picture and best cinematography suspicion in 1941 Joan Fontaine won for best actress Uh, So maybe Johnny will watch that for our next episode. Uh, Spellbound in 1945 won a Best Music and Scoring Award. To Catch a Feet in 1955 won for Best Cinematography Color. And then The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1956 won a Best Music Original Song. So not very Hitchcockian type of categories. You would think production design. You would think more cinematography. You would think sound. You would think special effects, director, nothing. Not a not so and even the bulk of his better known films or most loved films like A Rear Window, 0 for 4 in 1954, Vertigo in 1958, which many people consider his best work, 0 for 2 wasn't even nominated for director or picture. North by Northwest, no director, no best picture. 0 for 3, Psycho, 1960, 0 for 4 had a best director nomination but did not win, and in 1963 for The Birds. One nomination, no wins for best special effects. So it's kind of a big like, what the fuck? Why isn't Hitchcock getting this? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't understand why Hollywood would have this aversion to him as a maybe as a person they didn't like him. John, what are your initial thoughts on knowing um, Hitchcock just never won an Oscar himself?
0: So, you know, if you really want to learn about Hitchcock, go check out one of the many uh, great Hitchcock podcasts that are out there. But we haven't really dived too deep into his character. We spoke a little bit about how him and uh, Selznick kind of had issues. They, they were hard to work together. You know, he specifically did things so he could get his way. He was actually really over budget on the film. I, I think it, it was originally supposed to be about like $500,000. and it ended up costing like $1.2 around there. So he was way over budget. He was supposedly kind of difficult to work with from a producer side. Some actresses really hated him. They found him kind of almost torturous in the way he was trying to direct and get you in in a moment and in a scene and i think where we are now in film and especially the academy is that they're still so producer driven like we have selznick winning last year and he's basically credited as the producer and uh quote unquote almost like the director of that film as he took so much control even though there's there's three directors and gone with the wind he was really the one credited for its success and for really defining the film and defining uh, this film as well so I, I could totally see it being the producer kind of world overshadowing Hitchcock people maybe not like Hitchcock not wanting to award him because he's kind of been hard to work with even though as we see with history and as time passing he's went on to, to change film and in the film landscape drastically and influence tons and tons of directors beyond him so uh, this is a great moment to just like reiterate while well, this is a podcast all about Winning Best Picture, getting awards, like awards don't mean anything. And I think the best way to kind of take a look at a filmography, a director, whatever it may be regarding film is to see its legacy, how much it continues to impact people, who continues to go back and watch it, what really matters. And I think that really speaks for itself. And not to say that John Ford doesn't matter. Grapes of Wrath, I've heard is a phenomenal film and we will definitely talk more about Ford next time. But it's, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly where those issues may lie with Hitchcock
1: Yeah, I, I certainly agree I think there's too much to be left up to speculation to, For us to really break it down um, But it's a shame It really is And I feel the same exact way as you just said That even though this is a podcast about awards And how much we're really engrossed With the idea of the Oscars And how prestigious and important it is To an extent Because you have filmmakers like a Hitchcock Never getting recognized You have The first filmmaker that comes to mind, which I don't know, maybe people might laugh at, but like George Lucas didn't win. He only got like an an honorary award, but his contributions to film and and Hollywood and and the whole process is indisputable. So yeah, Hitchcock never won, but so what? Because you have films like Rebecca, Notorious, Suspicion, Vertigo, Psycho, Rear Window, Rope, Birds. Those are just ones I'm naming off the top of my head that are so great. The 39 Steps, another great Hitchcock film. So yeah, he didn't win, but he has way better films than most directors who probably have one wish they had. So I'm just going to leave that kind of part of the discussion at that. So our final category of the night for Best Picture, Outstanding Production, the nominees are The Philadelphia Story, Our Town, The Long Voyage Home, The Letter, Kitty Foyle, The Great Dictator, The Grapes of Wrath, Foreign Correspondent, all this in heaven too, In our winner of the 1940 Best Picture Award went to Rebecca, to David O. Selznick for Selznick International Pictures and United Artists. So although Rebecca had 11 nominations that night, I, re- I repeat, 11 nominations and only won for Best Picture and Best Cinematography, marking the last time a film would win Best Picture but not win for either Directing acting or writing Selznick became the first producer to win two consecutive best picture awards and I tried to find other producers who may have done that but the issue is that people uh, they would honor either the studio for making the film or there were no names specifically given for some years and it was really hard to kind of compile that list so Selznick is just the first though producer to win two consecutive Oscars and The film distributor, United Artists, was the last of the original film studios, the big ones, being MGM, Columbia, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, RKO, Universal, and Paramount to win a Best Picture Oscar. Um, So it finally joined that rank of being one of the big studios um, to win. Um, And yeah, so I guess before we give our final thoughts and answer that wonderful question, let's give some stats to um, to the film. So Rebecca currently holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That means 100% of reviewers gave a fresh rating. And the average rating of those critics is an 8.63. And and, um, Rotten Tomatoes has started to break it down a little bit more. So their top critic percentage is still 100% at an 8.5. And there have been 25 considered top critic reviews of the film. So still getting great reviews for it. The audience score for Rebecca is a 92%. Um, and the average audience score is a 4.33. And on IMDb, it is an 8.1, uh, which is tied for the highest IMDb rating out of any Best Picture yet with Gone with the Wind. And uh, it happened one night um, in Quiet on the Western Front Trails at 8. So, John, what did you give Rebecca, the Best Picture winner of 1940? I gave
0: Rebecca a 80 out of 100. And... Uh, before anyone freaks out though we like, like the film a lot, uh, I gave You Can't Take It With You from two episodes ago, 1938 and 80. And then I also have an 84 Wings, which I also really enjoyed. So I really enjoyed this, this movie and especially kind of talking about it. We kind of dive deeper into the little tiny aspects of it that kind of bring out the, the gold that's mined out of this film. That was probably added from Hitchcock and, and uh, some of these uh, amazing artists on the film. But the issues for me, as I discussed, you know, some of the slower aspects of the writing, the beginning kind of like not chugging along fast enough than I think it needed to. And then I wish the end kind of just punched up more. And and maybe that was interference with the MPAA and, you know, not being able to try to adapt the story perfectly from the novel. But I felt there could have been a a grander, you know, third act, a, a bigger reveal, a more intense kind of finale. But otherwise, I loved like, almost every technical aspect of this movie. And it's it truly is so significant on, on the way it's kind of gone on to to influence history and, and film.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly loved it. And um, my rating was a 94. And originally, it was higher. I really love this film. I think that this film is really is one of Hitchcock's best. It's Hitchcock really never changes over time. His films are consistent with his tone, with how he approaches filmmaking. It's just the technology that changes, giving him more more of a wide berth to create and, and to make bigger films like Psycho, like A Rear Window, Vertigo, et cetera, in his later half of his career. But for this, this is a really good point. It's the first uh, full American film that he makes. So the fact that he is starting to ingratiate himself in American film is, is pretty remarkable. So why a ninety-four? Actually originally it was a ninety-eight, because I really had no qualms about it. But talking more of John, I guess I felt took on some of John's criticisms and kind of I'm like, yeah, that's true, that it does drag at times, but I also think that it requires so many different rewatches because it's so good. So the ninety-four really kind of just represents a it's an A movie. I didn't want to give it more than it happened one night. It happened one night was a ninety five. And actually All quiet the Western Front for me was a ninety six. So I didn't want to I think that th- that this movie's up there with those, but I think because I personally love It Happened One Night so much, I was like, I can't give it more than that, but I still love it a lot. And I gave Gone with the Wind a 93 and I'm like, I think I actually like Rebecca more <laughs> than Gone with the Wind, even though I love Gone with the Wind. I think I just like the the horror and, and the darkness and the drama of Rebecca that much more. So it sits at a 94 for me. Our average ratings of as of 13 Best Picture winners into this, John, you are sitting at a 65.7 and I'm sitting at a 72.7. So, John, let's answer that question. Is Rebecca worthy of the Best Picture Award of
0: 1940?
1: Yes. 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 Definitely. 100%. I think we've kind of said our piece with uh, with this film and why we think it's worthy. Are there any like final thoughts on Rebecca specifically, or just Hitchcock, maybe in general?
0: No, I, I will. I will say I don't have too much else to say, but I will say that this this is a film that may like grow on me a little bit more. You know, there may be aspects, like you said, with multiple viewings, with some of the uh, beginning. You know, not even really thinking more about uh, the narrator in the very beginning being. You know, possibly Rebecca. There's so many kind of small details that this film slowly kind of breaks apart, and and it makes you uncomfortable in ways that I think Hitchcock is really trying to do. And make a movie making you feel anything is a feat, and let alone a movie that constantly makes you feel something, that constantly makes you question characters' motives, makes you think about uh, the previous history before the film even started. I think is an even bigger feat. So Rebecca definitely worthy. Of being a Best Picture winner.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. I think uh, I I th- I really liked how you said that. That if a film makes you feel something, it's pretty successful. And this made me feel a number of things. So if you have not seen Rebecca yet, please go watch it. If you haven't watched much of Hitchcock's filmography, please go watch it. It is great. There's just there's nothing more to say besides it. It's just great. So I'm Ben, and I'm John, and, and this, this is Worthy. Is Worthy. I not think she'd been gone so long, would you?
0: Sometimes, when I walk along the corridor, I fancy I hear her just behind me. That quick, light step. I couldn't mistake it anywhere. It's not only in this room. It's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? No, no, I don't believe it. Sometimes. I wonder if she doesn't come back here to Manderley. Watch you and Mr. De Winter together. You look tired. Why don't you stay here a while and rest? And listen to the sea. So soothing. Listen to it.
1: Listen. Listen to the scene.
0: Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. That's WorthySubmissions at gmail.com.